For the first time in the history of the Cannes Film Festival, one film has swept all the major awards. Barton Fink. Welcome to Los Angeles, Mr. Fink. Excuse me? Howdy, neighbor. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time, then. you want the writer is king here at capital pictures we're only interested in one thing can you tell a story Bob? can you make us laugh can you make us cry can you make us want to break out enjoy a song is that more than one thing okay devil on the canvas 12 apple take one just having trouble getting started all the spirit wrestling picture what do you need a roadmap we all need understanding barton oh you'll lick this picture business believe me you got a head on your shoulders and what is it they say where there's a head there's hope I'm sitting in the audience the lights go down Capital logo comes up. Come on. Nate? LAPD. Got some questions we want to ask you. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Something horrible's happened. Female Caucasian, about 30 years old. Never seen mud with anyone fits that description. But, you know, with the head still on. Well, Barton, you might say I saw peace of mind. <laughs> Now, the contents of your head are the property of Capital Pictures. Charlie, why me? Because you don't listen! I'm a writer. A new film by Joel and Ethan Cohen. I'll show you the life of the mind. I'll show you the life of the mind. Anyway, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, talking about Barton Fink. Um, really, really excited about this one. Controversially, probably. Um, this is my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Um, I don't know where everyone else stands on the rankings of... Because, of, you know, they have so many good ones. And I think... I mean, I guess probably Fargo is the most... Like, most people's favorite um, that, that I've heard. But... I don't know. Um, any of you guys want to want to throw out your favorite Home Brothers movie before we do introductions? Or Raising Arizona is one of my favorites. Yeah, that's one of the few I haven't seen. Actually, oh, that's like one. You of need... Yeah, yeah, you're missing out. That's uh, J. Andrew World in the Nick Cage Lover column. Over there. <laughs> I'd go for the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, their last uh, completed film together. Buster yeah. Scruggs is quite good. Yeah, it is. It's often forgotten about too. Yeah, not by me. Oh, it's still I, I, I watched it so many times. <laughs> yeah. My friend's in that. That's a small it. part. Uh, I would probably go for the Big Lebowski, but I like Martin Feet quite a bit. It's hard. Really? Yeah. Like, it's all great movies. They're very different movies too. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, one could say that this is his seven. I already made that joke. <laughs> yeah, what's in the box? Not in there. Not on air. <laughs> True. All right. Um, I am, of course, joined by J. Andrew World. Uh, J. Andrew Seven World, as they say. You know, he's always he's always talking about the box. Um, 
<laughs> Protonic Reversal and Conan Neutron, the secret friend zone. Conan Neutron. And we are also very happy to be joined by Joseph McBride, um, professor of cinema studies at San Francisco State University, screenwriter, of course, for Rock and Roll High School, which we talked about last time uh, you were on, author of several books, including uh, Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, Catastrophe of Success, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, which is the book we discussed last time about um, Sunset Boulevard, or, you know, talking through that. And, of course, your newest book about the Coen brothers, The Whole Darn Human Comedy. And I got your your uh, book book cover right here. Great, Great to see it. And yeah. Forrest was so excited to get the introduction out, he called my band Kona Neutron in the Suit at Friend Zone, which is incredible. <laughs> I didn't call it. Did I say that? Yes, you did. <laughs> Conan trying the secret friends. I don't. I, don't... <laughs> I was. Yeah. I was still flabbergasted. Like he can't possibly have said that. I'm like, oh no, I think he did. I'm, I'm like, was I hallucinating? No, Conan's confused too. <laughs> yeah, because people are like, huh? Huh? what? Uh, Mr. McBride, uh, pleasure to have you on, man. Great to be back. It's great to be back and talk with you guys again. Terrific. Another Hollywood film. Yeah. <laughs> another 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 film about Hollywood. Um, I realized last night uh, I watched some of Hail Caesar, which is not the Coen Brothers' best film by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. Has some good moments in it. Um, I do think it's a good prologue to like Buster Scruggs, like the way that they did that, because you know there's so many storylines that aren't necessarily. I mean, they're connected, but like they're kind of all happening simultaneously. So I thought it was cool as like a, a proto anthology film, but. Um, I, I realized that the the company everyone's working for uh, in in Hail Caesar is Capital Pictures, but it seems like it's a it's a later iteration when kind of the um you know the genius of uh of the first I guess generation of, of Hollywood you know people has kind of dissipated. <laughs> well, it's uh, 1941 in uh, Barton Shank around the time of Pearl Harbor, and then in um, Hail Caesar, it's around the time of the blacklist because it shows a bunch of blacklisted writers plotting out in Malibu. And so that would make it uh, in the late 40s, probably. And it's, it's, they're both uh, sort of based on MGM. It's quite clear. Uh, Michael Lerner's uh, character in Barton Fink is uh, clearly modeled on Louis B. Mayer, but he has some of Harry Cohn of Columbia and some of Jack Warner. Jack Warner, for example, uh, enlisted uh, as in the Army. Uh, uh, during World War II, and he had a he wore a uniform, and they had to call him uh, Colonel Warner and all that. And yeah, so they do that gag with uh, Michael Lerner, and he said, "Well, I got it from wardrobe because I haven't, they haven't come up with my real uniform yet." You know, <laughs> the Cones like to mash things together, and mm -hmm. uh, they also violate chronology a lot, which uh, is part of the fun of their movies. I, I you know, if, this film is very dense. I watched it again. Uh, and wow, I mean, it's got so many illusions. They claim they wrote it in three weeks when they had writer's block on Miller's Crossing, but they may have written the first draft in three weeks, but it's got so much uh, research. They claim they didn't do much research, but I mean, it's got a lot of subtle allusions to all kinds of films. And what struck me though, watching it this time is how much uh, it was really eerie for me because I, I'm, I call myself a recovering screenwriter. I, I quit the business in 1984, but it's like being a recovering alcoholic. You never could say you're recovered, you know. Uh, so I've been away from it for 38 years, but I went through so many of the experiences, literally, that this guy goes through in the film. And the eerie atmosphere of the film is so uh, true. You know, the loneliness and desperation and isolation of a screenwriter. Wow, they really captured that. I mean, it's a very claustrophobic film. You, you, it very rarely goes outdoors. 
and uh, at the end it goes outdoors, and that's it's kind of a weird, uh, kind of strange ending, uh, fantasy ending, perhaps. But um, one of the things that, that is not um, accurate is uh, a, a screenwriter brought to Hollywood in those days would work on the lot. And today they work at home. And I remember when I sold my uh, one and only script to a, a major studio, Orion, Barbara Streisand bought a script that she wanted to make her directing debut and star in it that, that I wrote uh, based on a story some friends of mine did. And um, I said, can I get an office on the lot? And they laughed at me. They said, are you kidding? Nobody works on the lot anymore. You got to work in your apartment, you know? So, uh, that part of it rings true. Uh, it doesn't, it's not true to 1941, but the poor guy is stuck in this dumpy hotel and, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't have any uh, consolation except this crazy guy who lives next door. And uh, once in a while they let him out briefly for a meeting or something. But um, I, I was trapped in my apartment for, uh, I was a screenwriter full-time for seven years. I, I've been doing it for 10 years before I sold the script. So I've, I really have 18 years total of uh, screenwriting experience, and um, I, I did pretty well. I mean, for for screenwriters go, I, I won the Writers Guild Award for the AFI Salute to John Houston in 1983, and I actually quit the business in '84 when I, I got the Writers Guild Award for, for the Houston show. I got a Writers Guild nomination for the Lillian Gish program. I got an Emmy nomination for the Gish program, and I was vested for a pension all at the same time. And I thought, this is a great time to quit. When, when I'm on top, I'll go out. <laughs> it was really a hellish experience. And this film is about Hollywood as hell. And it, it really does drive you crazy. Uh, I had to get out of it because it's uh, it's so disturbing. And you're showing a picture there of uh, John Trotter. Yeah, this is the writer. This, this is picture of, uh, from your book where you're talking about Hollywood as hell. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, one of the things that is, is spooky about this film uh, the hotel where he lives, uh, when I first came to Hollywood in 1974, I actually moved to California in 73, but I spent two weeks in Hollywood and I couldn't get a job. So I took a job on a newspaper in Riverside, which is 50 miles away. And I'm, when I was in the Midwest, I looked on the map, it looked like it was right next door to LA. And I didn't realize it was 50 miles away. It's a long way. So I was driving back and forth a lot at night. I couldn't do this now, but back then when you're young, you could do this. I would Get on, get on my car, go to a movie or see friends, and then come back at three o'clock in the morning and get to work at eight o'clock in the morning. And, um, you know, I was really depressed being there. And I finally got this job, and I had to get a, I got a job on Daily Variety, which was terrific. It enabled me to go on film sets and interview everybody. But I had to get an apartment real fast in one day. And I, as as fate would have it, I guess. My apartment was about three blocks from the dump where Joe Gillis has his apartment in Sunset Boulevard, and that building was still there. And it, and it was about five or six blocks in the opposite direction from the hotel that Nathaniel West based uh, Day of the Locust on, which is the greatest Hollywood novel, another horrifying tale that the Coen brothers are deeply indebted to. They, they've said that their influences are not so much cinematic as literary. And so here I am between these two places. And another thing in the movie, when uh, the wallpaper starts peeling off soon after the guy arrives, he, he asks the only uh, worker, Chet, played by uh, Buscemi, Steve Buscemi, uh, hey, the wallpaper's peeling off. And I had the same experience. I, I had cockroaches. And I, I, I asked the landlady, uh, you know, I, 
please get rid of the cockroaches. I thought you'd hire an exterminator. And the next day I opened the door and there was a can of raid outside in the hall. So <laughs> then I knew I had to leave. And I fortunately found a place in Beverly Hills, right across the street from Shelley Winters, which was a trip also because uh, every morning she'd wake me up at eight o'clock. She'd run out screaming and moo moo because they were building a, an apartment building next door and the guys would um, show up at eight o'clock and, and a roach coach, as they called them, you know, the, Oh, the, the taco truck would show the, up. The truck, the food truck. Yeah, it, yeah. Blow the horn really loud, and uh, I, I slept through it. But Shelly Winters would freak out, and she'd run out screaming at these guys, "Shut up! Turn off!" And my friend, who I was living with, said, "Shelly's up! Shelly's up!" And he would run out and try to put the make on Shelly Winters, and she was too smart. <laughs> she, she wouldn't go along with it, but he tried and tried and tried. So it was uh, so much, and I wrote a wrestling picture. The first first film I had produced was a wrestling picture, and. In this movie, uh, poor Barton Fenke's writing a Wallace Beery wrestling picture, which yeah. the, the Coen brothers thought was very comical because they, they saw they read this book, City of Nets by Otto Friedrich, which is sort of like the grab bag of all kinds of Hollywood stories. And they, they saw that William Faulkner's first work in Hollywood was to write a wrestling picture called Flesh. And actually, it's a John Ford movie, and Faulkner doesn't get credit. Moss Hart gets uh dialogue credit and a couple of other writers three writers get credit but not faulkner but um there's a faulkner character in the film but uh flesh is actually a pretty good film uh i watched it again and i i think it's an underrated film it, it's uh, ford took his name off it as director because somebody else reshot parts of it as, as was their uh, tradition at mgm but it's it, it's much better than its reputation um uh, allows, but I wrote a film called Blood and Guts. I spent five years trying to raise money for that. The first producer went to jail. I mean, this is like, this is a crazy Hollywood story. And we, then we got another producer. We made it in Canada, and it was kind of a nightmarish production. And the producer took half the half the money. The executive producer was a six hundred thousand dollar budget, which it was a road picture, six hundred thousand dollars, including wrestling scenes where you needed crowds. And I mean, it was really hard to make it. At that, but he took three hundred thousand off the top, so we made it for three hundred thousand. And it, it, the script was horrible because I was told that two, uh, a Canadian writer had to touch it up because we were going to change it from a period film to a contemporary film. And uh, so I said, "Well, just one writer." And then it turned out they had two, and they rewrote the whole thing. And I got up there in Canada; it was a horrible script. So I was rewriting it as we went along, just to make it not disgraceful. And it, it came out and it actually got some good reviews. It's not a very good film. Paul Schrader told me, he said, I love the script and I hate the film. That's pretty accurate. Um, but it got 11 Canadian Film Awards nominations and one for Best uh, Supporting Actor, Henry Beckman. And I got a script nomination. But the producer... So suck it, Schrader. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it was a bad film. He's right. Uh, it's mediocre. I mean, the acting, William Smith is wonderful. Henry Beckman is wonderful. Micheline Langto. But... It's poorly directed. The director, they were going to fire him the first week, and I and I saved his job for him, and I wish I hadn't. But anyway, the, the end of that story was the producer dumped the film after a week. It got good reviews in Toronto, except one, and uh, he, he just pulled the film so he could write it off as a tax loss. In those days, with the Canadian tax shelter laws, if you lost money, you could, you could write off a bigger chunk of money. So he killed the film after five years of work. It wasn't worth the trouble. And so I, you know, that's my, uh, you know, we all have these horror stories as screenwriters. And I mean, so many things, even in the film, John Goodman is revealed to be a character named Madman Munt, 
He's and it's based partly on Carl Munch, who was a senator from South Dakota, which is neighbor, neighboring Minnesota, where the Cone brothers grew up. And Munch was on the House Committee on Un-American Activities, so they called this uh, serial killer Carl Munch as a gag. But they say the cops say his nickname is Madman Munt, and that was an allusion to a guy named Madman Munts who sold big screen TVs and stuff. And he, Madman Munts, tried to bribe me once when I was on Variety. I mean, it's so eerie, so many connections that I could go on. He, he called me up and he said, "If you get a banner headline on Variety for me telling you about big screen TVs, I'll give you a big screen TV that's worth two thousand dollars or something." And, I said, I, you know, I'm not going to do that. So I went right in to see my editor, and I, I reported this. I said, man, man, once just tried to bribe me. I want you to know. And I, t I, I turned him down, and he said, ah, oh, he's doing that all the time. You know, forget this guy. He's just a nut. Um, but anyway, so, so many things in this movie rang true. It really was spooky for me. Yeah, so since the, the Madman Munt is the last uh, the last point on, on your list that you made, um, I have a clip of John Goodman talking about um, – you know how how he finds it interesting to have played this role because obviously it's kind of a, a complete departure from uh, everything that John Goodman had done really up to this point, right? Like he's kind of the um, you know like the nice guy on Roseanne or like you know the Coen Brothers use him actually in a, a bunch of different roles um, that are all kind of different. I don't think you can really compare his character or anything else to like Walter and uh, you know in 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 The Big Lebowski or like you know really any of the roles that he does for them, but. Um, I don't know. I found this. I found this interesting. It's from like a. In raised in Arizona, and he's a con man in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And you know he plays yeah. a variety of characters. But he's. A, they said they cast him as this psycho because he has this nice guy demeanor, average guy demeanor. You like yeah. him, you see him, you know. And and just the kind of demeanor that would sucker somebody like uh, Barton Fink in. I mean, you know, someone who has yeah. a complete lack of connection to the common man, and yet kind of. Uh, that's the the concept, you know, the conceptual point he's obsessed with. Right. That's the gag. I didn't know it was a big deal. Uh -huh. um, and we hit it off pretty well. <laughs> and I think the reason that they cast me was because I, I had a pudgy baby face. Uh -huh. And the theme of the film was babies. There were a lot of baby movies made in the mid-'80s. <laughs> this is the most twisted, Yeah, I think. Let's talk a little bit about some of those roles. I, uh, your Carl Monster Munt, uh, racing down the burning hallway, uh, screaming, "I'll show you the life of the mind." I just love that scene. Tell me about that character, Madman Munt. Yeah, uh, that's that's what Ethan Cohen still calls me, Madman. He's a serial killer with a heart. Mm. Just a good-natured traveling, uh, <laughs> commercial traveling salesman. Uh, with a racy necktie and uh, a gift of gab and the unfortunate habit of decapitating people. <laughs> yeah. And then he takes an interest in Barton. Uh, yeah, that's uh, you and, uh, and John, John Turturro. <laughs> yeah, I think Joel told me that they had a vision of Turturro and I sitting on a flop house bed in our underwear. <laughs> and, and things evolved from that. I, I don't <laughs> yeah. know whether to believe that or not. Um, Perhaps your most famous role is in The Big Lebowski, where you play Walter Sobchak. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me how you approach that role. Thank you to all my reactionary yeah. fans. <laughs> uh, 
such a great idea. That's yeah. what I, the point I was going to attempt to make before we play the clip is that like the the thing with this movie is it made people realize, oh my god, this guy can really act. Like he's good. He's not like, oh, that's you know that guy's all right. It's like no, he's really good. Yeah. Okay. And people, I also really love that. Um, thank you to all my reactionary fans. Line in the clip. killer with the heart. I mean, he is the common man that Martin Fink keeps talking about. Uh, he's he's this pretentious left wing writer from New York who believes in uh, proselytizing for the common man. He's he's modeled on Clifford Odets, who who wrote uh, Waiting for Lefty and things like that. And he comes to Hollywood as Odets did. And uh, but the way the clones are satirizing. This man is that he really doesn't give a shit about the common man. He's just, it's all abstract to him. And then Goodman is really a, a sort of a common man, although he turns out to be an uncommon man because he's a serial killer. But at first, he seems like a regular guy. He's an insurance salesman, lonely guy. So he starts trying to tell him stories. He said, I got a lot of stories to tell you. And any good writer would say to anybody, uh, hey, yeah, like, Hey. Tell me about it. And he keeps and he keep he won't he won't listen. He keeps like interrupting and bringing up his own his own stuff, just like I just did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how you find out. Leo McCary, for example, one of the great Hollywood directors, said he would talk constantly to ordinary people who he met or anybody he met. He would sit and talk to everybody for two hours. He said after two hours, most people have exhausted their interest, you know. But some people don't, you know, and you become real friends with them. But he said, I could talk to anybody for two hours. I took that to heart. And I listened to strangers and people I, I have a chance to chat with. And, and that's where you get some of your stories. You know, if Barton Fink was really a good writer, uh, one reason he has writer's block, he doesn't listen to people. And then at the end of the movie, John Goodman, he says to him, why me? Why did you do this to me? And he says, well, you didn't listen. You know? Yeah. No, and there's, and there's an incredibly... Um, you know, I think a well-timed kind of comedic uh, thing when you realize that, like, no, the reason that he targeted Barton Fink is because in the very beginning, when he calls down to uh, Steve Buscemi and he complains, like, oh, this guy's making too much noise, you realize, like, it, it's almost like a, like a 80s sitcom kind of moment where you realize, like, no, it's this little foible that, like, this guy had where he's like, oh, I'm trying to work. And, you know, the guy's kind of uh, honeypotting him in, in a way, like, you know, in the sense of, like, Everything that he he says, um, you know, uh, John Goodman tends to be incredibly interested in, right? Um, Charlie Meadows, I guess, is his name when he's not a serial killer. Mm -hmm. And he pretends to be incredibly interested in it, and he's flattering him. And that's the real reason that, um, you know, that, that he likes this one common man is because, number one, he's lonely. But number two, he kind of flatters him, and he's like, oh, wow, you're so much smarter than me. And, like, your brain works so well. Like, you know, so it, it's like he likes the common man as long as the common man is kind of kissing his ass. But, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, when you mentioned it, I just thought of a connection. Uh, it, it, the trigger, although the, I, when you see the movie, you kind of realize John Goodman targeted him for other reasons. But yeah, uh, he does complain about him like like a lot of us do, that somebody next door is making noise. And then this causes him to come up and all kinds of terrible things happen. It reminds me of Duel, the great Spielberg film, which came out in 71, a TV movie. And when you watch that again, the, the guy, the truck driver who's chasing Dennis Weaver's little car all through the film seems to have no motive. He's just crazy. You don't see the guy. But actually what he does is uh, um, Dennis Weaver cuts him off at one point without signaling, you know, like people do. And then the guy gets mad. It's about road rage. And uh, so the guy just is an extreme form of rage. He goes on for an hour and a half chasing him and trying to kill him. 
and, and so it's a, I, I guess it's sort of, it does fit the 70s paranoia thing, although this film came out later, but uh, uh, it's, it's such a great, I mean, one of the things that strike me about the Coen brothers that is so wonderful is somehow in, in contemporary American filmmaking, they, they managed to make quirky individual personal films of the ones they want to make in this terrible system that is doing everything possible to stop personal filmmaking. You know, the, uh, I feel very sad about the American film industry because, you know, it used to be great. And now they're making almost entirely uh, garbage. And that's one reason, you know, the Academy Awards they're talking about, uh, you know, the, the show doesn't attract interest. Well, it's really because they don't make that kind of movie anymore that is worthy of an award. And back in the day, uh, you know, some comedy movies won Oscars, but, you know, they were trying for quality in some of their films, and they made a range of films back then for the whole audience, family audience, et cetera. But now the films are made for 12, 24-year-old males, and uh, they're, they're mostly escapist. Uh, I, I guess some female uh, viewers like the Marvel films, too, but, you know, they're all $200 million spectacle films. and. To make a little uh, character-driven film that's quirky and uh, edgy and uh, provocative is very hard to do. But I, I think the secret of the Coen brothers' success is partly they made Blood Simple very cheaply with independent money, and they, they showed Hollywood what they could do. You need a calling card like Spielberg had with Amblin uh, to show, oh, this guy really has a talent. Let's, let's give him some money and let him make another film. Um, but um, they have a good track record. I mean, all their films are not as successful, but some are. But I think that a lot of their money comes from abroad, from Europe. They're bigger in Europe than here, like in France. If you look at the credits, they have a, a lot of production companies, mostly European, who put up the money for their films. And the Hollywood studios are not generally bankrolling these guys. You know, once in a while, like True Grit, yeah, they, they do. And that was their biggest commercial hit um, and, and uh, Fargo is a big hit but um, a lot of their films are just kind of uh, quirky marginal films but they're not the kind of films you could walk into a Hollywood studio and have a pitch meeting and sell because they throw you out uh, especially if you had no track record you know but the Coens do have a track record so they say it's actually been easy for them in Hollywood uh, you can never take what they say totally seriously and I talk about that in my book The Holder in Human Comedy but um, one of the reasons I wrote this is I think they're often misunderstood despite being popular. They have a whole cult following. They, they've been honored with uh, awards from festivals and some Oscars and a lot of devoted fans. And, but a lot of people misunderstand them and a lot of critics do. So that's one reason I write books. But um, they, um, when they say our life in Hollywood has been easy, and so uh, Barton Fink is not uh, a representation of what we've been through. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to know. I'm sure they've had some bad experiences, uh, you know, pitching ideas to people who were idiots and uh, uh, having trouble raising money and, and getting films made and, and, and having, uh, well, you know, critics sometimes uh, attacking viciously. And the way I structure my book is every chapter I start with some criticism of them uh, leveled by their detractors, and then I answer it. It's a rhetorical device that I learned from Jesuit priests when I went to Marquette University High School. They, they said, if you want to uh, win an argument, ask the other guy to give his point of view and then, then tear it apart, you know, listen to the point of view and then tear it apart. So that's kind of what I do. Yeah, well, and... I 
Oh, I was just gonna say real quick. Fargo is like maybe one of their biggest hits. That's a weird movie. Like if yeah, you think yeah. about like their traditional structure of what people expected out of a movie at the time, that is indie darling all over it. But it's, it's a it was a huge hit. Huge. Well, the reason for that is because the character of Marge, played by Frances McDormand, is so lovable. She's one of the most yes. lovable modern film characters. She is just great. She's a police chief who's pregnant, and she's a real right. honest person real human being, and she's mixed up. It is a very strange plot, and when I first saw it, it took me a while to get what it was driving at. It's a black comedy, and it's about this schlub. Uh, the, the Coens love to refer to their uh, protagonists as uh, idiots, and they mean it in an affectionate way. Uh, John, John uh, Malkovich in uh, Burn After Reading calls them a legion of morons. That's, that's kind of what their characters are. But uh, Bill Macy uh, try, tries to uh, pull off this scam where he's going to get his wife kidnapped and extort money from his father-in-law. It's totally crazy. And then it backfires on him. And it, it really is nightmarish. But your focus is on Marge, who solves the crime. And, and I think that's why it appealed to the public, because they had a character they could relate to who they loved. You know? And uh, their other biggest hit is um, No Country for Old Men, which, again, is a very dark film about serial killing again. But you have a, a, a lawman in the middle of the story. The protagonist is Tommy Lee Jones, who is a very honest, uh, upstanding uh, guy. But he's he is he's like Marge in that both of them don't know how to cope with the evil of the modern world, you know, serial killers and things. Tommy Lee Jones came up in a world where, you know, that didn't really happen. And he's, he's an old Texas lawman. His father is a lawman. And he's, he's got a lot of integrity and uh, honesty and intelligence, but he admits that I, I can't deal with uh, this guy uh, killing people. And they also, they also put uh, Josh Brolin in a role kind of, I mean, not like the William, William Macy role, but like they kind of put him in this role that he's not necessarily good or evil. He's kind of in his own uh, space where it's like, you know, he finds the money and he's trying to figure out like whether he can or how to keep it and like they kind of put him in this role where you're you relate to him on some level in the same way that i think william h macy i don't i don't know if anyone else could have played played that role in fargo like he's okay. just so he's perfect pathetic. yeah yeah and he's so <laughs> pathetic that you're like listen i know that what you're doing is really shitty you know um like you're the one that had your wife kidnapped like i know that but at the same time it's like i kind of want you to win because it looks like you've just been kicked around so much and yeah, I don't think that that goes for Josh Brolin in No Country for Old Men, but it still is this kind of um, it's the underdog that like you know whether whether or not you agree with their decisions throughout the movie, you're like, well, I do relate to the fact that you know you've been kicked around to the point where it's like I kind of want you to keep this money either way. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the I think you've hit on the secret of the, their uh, complicated worldview in a way that. Uh, these are characters who are like us, you know, it's their films are cautionary tales, which uh, is reference to a story that you can relate to, but you kind of look at it and you think, oh my gosh, I better not ever try to do that. It's yeah. like we have dreams, all of us have dreams where we get into hot water because we do something uh, reckless, you know. So the whole thing, you know, like one thing you don't do if you find the uh, aftermath of a uh, drug shootout is pick up the suitcase with the money in it, you know. And Josh Brolin's fatal mistake is that he picks up the suitcase. But he's he's a likable schlub, you know, like William Mitch Macy. And Macy's, uh, I mean, yeah, we kind of think he's he's put upon by his father-in-law, and uh, he's got this miserable job. And it's kind of a fantasy. Everybody has, a, you know, like making a big score. 
And uh, yeah. a, lot, a lot of films have done that, and then they find out, uh, you know, it's hellish, uh, the consequences. But the Coens have this unique blend of uh, tone that is their own. I mean, uh, other people have done black comedies, of course. Uh, when I mention that to my students, they don't actually know what a black comedy is. They think uh, I'm talking about Chris Rock films or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think comedy on the whole has been sort of subverted by the what the genre that used to be known as, as black comedy or dark comedy, however you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think in general, uh, comedic tastes have shifted to like a somewhat darker tone. But it yeah. used to be, yeah, like that, that was my favorite genre of movie was yeah. like dark comedy, right? You know, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and I was a big movie fan, but I went to see Dr. Strangelove in 1964 right after it came out in my hometown theater. And I sat there with my best friend who was the smartest guy in our high school. He went on to be number one in his class at Harvard at law school, you know, brilliant guy. And I, I thought it was a serious film about uh, nuclear war, a scary thriller, you know. <laughs> and, but my friend was chuckling all the way through. And then he said, as you could say back then, let's sit through it again. You can't do that today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They kick you right out. <laughs> then I got it the second time. I was like, oh, this is this is very funny, you know. It, it's, it is scary. I think if you watched it alone in your, your home, you know, you might still find it kind of scary. But... If you watch it in an audience where people are laughing, uh, I, I don't know how many people were laughing at that uh, small uh, theater, but my friend and I got it the second time. And I was a different person when I came out of the theater that, that night from what I was when I went in. I was a 16-year-old Catholic high school kid, and uh, I, I, it kind of almost totally destroyed my faith and authority that I, I was suffering under in those days from the church and, and my parents and everything. But you see that film, and it gives you a totally different worldview. From that point on, I, I, I used to think of, uh, I, I was trying to devise black comedies about any subject, you know, trying to think, uh, you know, I wrote a, uh, some scripts that were black comedies, but they're hard to sell because people don't understand them always. They, they, they don't get the tone or they, they get offended or whatever. Ernst Lubitsch made one in 1942 that To Be or Not To Be is a great film. And he dared to deal with um, Nazism in, in a, semi-comedic way, semi-drama, semi-comedy. And it was made right at the time of Pearl Harbor. It came out right after Pearl Harbor. And it did okay with the audience, but it, uh, he got some really nasty attacks, especially in the New York Times. And he wrote a big defense of it. And he said, um, most films, they have dramatic films, have comic relief. And then sometimes, as Mel Brooks puts it, if you do a comedy, you have to have some... Uh, a dramatic relief. I mean, dramas have to have comic relief and comedies have to have dramatic relief. You can't just laugh for an hour and a half or two hours. So, But Lubitsch said, I wanted to make a film in which I didn't relieve anybody from anything. And at any moment, it's what the brilliance of that film is, it's both comic and serious at the same time. And uh, But he didn't, he said, uh, I didn't show Nazis whipping people and stuff, which is what the audience expected. But he said, my Nazis in this film had passed that point long ago. Now they're making jokes about their uh, torture and things like that. And he was way ahead of his time. People uh, didn't understand that at all. And so Kubrick really changed the horizon. But certain writers, you know, Jonathan Swift, and I, I talk about certain writers that uh, preceded the Coen brothers. Uh, Swift was a great uh, satirist. His A Modest Proposal, which is a fantastic attack in the British oppression of Ireland, uh, his modest proposal is that the Irish should eat their babies uh, in 
instead of food, you know. And uh, some people, I guess, take that literally, and they're horrified by it. But uh, he was making an extreme point. He's he's the predecessor of the Cohen brothers, and they said the three big influences, by the way, are uh, Dashiell Hammett, James M. Cain, and Flannery, Flannery O'Connor. And O'Connor is a really savage writer. She's a really great satirist and great writer. And uh, uh, I think uh, her influence is evident in the like the last uh, segment of Ballad of Buster Scruggs and other films. Uh, so that, that's where they got their ideas from those uh, writers, I think, and more than from watching films, although they, they certainly are film mavens. They, there are a lot of film references, but I, I don't think they're um, as obsessive film mavens as some directors like Spielberg or Scorsese who probably have seen everything, you know. Well, it seems like um, there's like a very utopian, I mean, Barton Fink is a good example of kind of a very literary film. Um, you know, his, his role within it is, he literally sees himself as, as a playwright, you know, and, and he's kind of cast into this Hollywood world where uh, the audience, number one, is very different. It's no longer like the, the New York Review set, you know what I mean? It's just sitting there and they're like, oh, I want to see drama with the human soul. And I find it uh, really funny that like one of the lines in it um, is uh, when he's like, he's like, oh, there's plenty of poetry right in that ring, like the wrestling ring. Like, I, I, I think it's interesting because you know, I don't think that Byron Fink is someone who really can connect to like the human soul because I don't think he really, I mean, it's not that he doesn't have one as much as he just seems like he's a very superficial kind of vapid. He's a superficial, vapid, like left intellectual, which um, are, are kind of one of the more uh, funny, funny um, archetypes, I guess, to satirize. Um, yeah. yeah, a lot of um, intellectuals in that period were, um, I mean, they're making fun of, like, for example, in Hail Caesar, the uh, the radicals are meeting in Malibu, and that was, I mean, there were great people who were blacklisted, like my friend Abe Polanski was a good friend of mine, a really great talent and a very honest man, and he was not a limousine liberal, as they call people today, but there were, there were a lot of Hollywood people who felt guilty because they were making a lot of money and living in big houses, and they were supposedly uh, talking about the poor, but what were they doing for the... What were they really doing for the underclass? They were donating money and things, and, and they tried to get uh, political content into their films, and they, they, they succeeded in some some ways, but not as much as they wanted. But, uh, you know, somebody made a point, another critic made a point about Barton Fink that um, he talks about he wants to create a living theater of the people, and he doesn't realize that movies are the living theater of the people that he's, he's thinking about. He's such a snob, like, you know, one of the things that used to irritate me in Hollywood movies is, uh, and I would see this when I was in Hollywood as a screenwriter, is a lot of these people uh, who were coming from playwriting or novel writing or whatever would look down on screenwriting as an inferior uh, art form. And I took it very seriously. I was working really hard at it. and uh, But I really didn't like the contempt that those people had, like Joan Didion and John Gregory done. They wrote a book called Monster, which I really love. Uh, it's about their their uh, bad experiences in Hollywood. But I mean, they were just sellouts. Uh, they wrote one good film, Panic in Needle Park, but Monster was based on a, a really schlocky film they wrote, and, and they were just taking the money so they could write their, you know, she could write her New York Review articles and her books that didn't sell much, and he wrote uh, some pretty good novels, but they weren't first rate. But there was this terrible snobbism, like we're just coming out and get the money and we're going to run and we look down on the whole medium. And uh, there's a wonderful speech in there. The Cone brothers really nail it when 
Michael Lerner gives his phony speech to Martin Fink, which obviously he gives to all the writers. He says that the writer is king. And then he says, and Martin Fink says, well, you know, I haven't seen very many movies. I, I don't go to movies very often. And he says, that doesn't matter. You don't need to know the medium. All that technical mumbo jumbo, who cares? You know, we have a lot of people here who don't know the medium. Uh, we, we can deal with that. He said, all we want is storytelling. You know, you can tell a story. I mean, that, in some way, that's true. Those moguls believed in storytelling. But to say... Yeah, he, says, uh, he says, you walked in here thinking that would be a handicap, that we only wanted people who knew the medium. Even yeah. there was this, all this techni techno mumbo jumbo that to learn. You were dead wrong. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bart? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you, do, can you make us want to break out and, and enjoy a song? And then he goes... And then he goes um, like I didn't write this down, but he's like, uh, if you could do more than one of those, yeah. that's great, fine. <laughs> yeah, this guy is too much of a snob to think that, you know, uh, I want to entertain the public, uh, you know, like that's beneath him because he's lecturing ordinary people about themselves. And that's one of the fallacies of that kind of populist uh, filmmaking. Uh, Frank Capra was the champion of the common man in the 30s. But he kind of looked down on the common man, actually. I did two books on him, and he was uh, kind of a hypocrite. But Robert Riskin was really the guy who put that sincere uh, populism into his films. But Capra was was doing it uh, kind of with one hand tied behind his back because he was a Republican who kind of loathed the common man. Uh, but uh, the Coen brothers uh, are mocking that kind of uh, hypocrisy, and I think that's pretty, uh, pretty on target. I think it gets kind of silly in Hail Caesar when there's a character model in Gene Kelly, who is a liberal, who was uh, caught up in, he was never a communist, but he was uh, supporting a lot of left-wing causes. And uh, he probably had to write a letter to MGM just disavowing his uh, political beliefs. I've seen some of the letters people wrote, but he didn't have to go and inform on people. He was a really big star. So they probably got him off. Maybe they paid a, a, a bribe or something, which is another way that people got off. But um, in that film, the, the radicals whisk him away to Russia on a submarine, which is pretty absurd, you know. I mean, they kind of went to Yeah, the Channing, the Channing Tatum character. Although, yeah. I mean, a, a big part of that, though, is also that he's um, he's gay, and it seems like maybe that played a, played a role in why he kind of whisks himself off to, like, Soviet Russia, too, because he's kind of yeah. escaping from that, which uh, I, I think it's kind of funny that just to make the point that, like, um, Hollywood musicals used to be incredibly, you know, uh, homoerotic, like they made uh, Channing Tatum learn in like three weeks how to tap dance. So he's able to do that entire tap dance routine, kind of like Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire, and uh, just just so they could kind of make a five minute joke out of that. Yeah, well, it kind of comes back later, but still, it's kind of it, it's funny that they went to that length. Well, they do absurd things in that film. For example, the main character Josh Brolin plays is called Eddie Mannix. And that is really absurd because the real Eddie Mannix was uh, one of the major executives at MGM, and he was really a thug. And there's some awful stories about him. But on the other hand, I've talked to people who knew him and said he had another side too that he was you could deal with him in an honest way. I mean, those guys were complex, but he was kind of uh, the enforcer at MGM. And in the movie, the worst he does, he hits somebody. Uh, but in real life, there are all kinds of stories about him. But I think they just called him that as a gag you know uh i wish they hadn't called him that because it, it just is so extremely different from the character uh, they actually hail caesar starts out the title actually says underneath a tale of the christ that's actually the subtitle and that's that's a gag on ben-hur which was called a tale of the christ that was one of mgm's biggest uh 
properties. So uh, Eddie Mannix is portrayed as a Christ figure. He's, he's going around helping people, saving people's lives. And the real Eddie Mannix was a real bastard, you know, and I mean, I guess that's part of the joke. It's it's such a subtle joke that only hardcore film buffs would get it. Uh, I think that it's, you know, I think Martin Fink didn't do very well at the box office, but I think if you, you don't have to be a Hollywood historian to appreciate it. You can sort of understand it's real basic stuff of a writer who's, uh, exploited in Hollywood and this crass studio boss is a two-faced guy and he's kissing his feet, you know, and all kinds of, uh, Louis B. Mayer would do these extravagant things like he'd get down on the floor and weep and roll around on the floor to show his emotions, and, you know, they're, they're, they're making fun of real archetypes. And then the, the William Faulkner character, uh, some people fault them for, um, like one of my friends I was talking to, said, well, you know, the Coen brothers are making fun of people who are politically involved, you know, and that's that shows their shallowness. Well, I answered that in my book, The Holder of Human Comedy. I think they make fun of everybody. I think they're equal opportunity uh, satirists, and that's what a satirist does. You know, Jonathan Swift uh, didn't spare any targets, and uh, uh, there are many, many great satirists out there in the world, and Kurt Vonnegut, uh, you know, is a modern example. Um, they don't uh, hold back on, uh, they don't have to show role models. Like people today expect characters to be role models, you know, perfect people who don't have flaws. And the Coen brothers characters are full of human flaws. And I think we can re all relate to that because we're all flawed people. And hopefully we try to be honest, et cetera. But, you know, we all have our, our bad side and they show that, but they're not required to give us role models. And that's one of the problems with American filmmaking now is that, they take, they smooth out the edges. Like, um, I'll just give you one crazy example. My friend, Stuart Gordon, who's now deceased, but he was a very good director. Uh, he made Reanimator, et cetera. And he made a film for Disney based on Ray Bradbury's wonderful play called The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit, which is a, a play about uh, a bunch of Mexican guys, Mexican-American guys living in LA in 1941. And they're very poor, but they, they scrape up uh, enough money together to buy a beautiful white suit, which is called the ice cream suit. And they, they share it. I think it's seven guys. And one day a week, each guy gets to wear the suit. And the suit has magical powers. And it's a charming play. But anyway, Stuart, when he went into Disney, they, they let him make the film. But he said, the executives uh, said, do they have to be Mexicans? <laughs> yeah, that's what the story's about. I mean, you know. You could I mean, have just gotten uh, Charlton Heston to play them. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, that's kind of different because uh, Wells wouldn't have made such a people without Charlton Heston uh, yeah. playing. Yeah, you know, it's just the it's just the Charlton yeah. Heston playing Mexican. Yeah, yeah, our minds kind of go back and forth into these realms. Of <laughs> Laura, that's true, uh, but you know, the I, I mean, I've run into that kind of stuff. Like, does the guy have to smoke? For example, the worst film I've ever seen is Pearl Harbor. It was so bad that I, I really thought I would never want to watch another movie again. And that lasted for about two weeks. And I, you know, I have the habit, I can't kick it. But I, I've studied that. I, it's got so many problems with it. And one of the problems I realized, nobody smokes in that movie. And in 1941, almost everybody smoked, you know, men, women. And, uh, you know, it's so crazy because there's some kind of weird taboo now that you can't show people smoking in period films. And uh, it's ridiculous because it, it doesn't look right. It's like people having the wrong haircuts, you know. Uh, one thing in Westerns I used to be bothered by is um, the women in Westerns almost always had modern hairstyles. They looked out of place, you know, compared to 
the real women you see in pictures of the old west you know and that's that's kind of what happens in a lot of hollywood films but it's, it's gone to an extreme and who do we like from the old movies you know a guy like humphrey bogart was an anti-hero he had a lot of flaws he had some integrity but he you know he could play criminals and stuff and uh, but today people have to be a paragon of virtue or something and I don't. Somebody well, said. I, I think that that also goes back to like the film code days, right? Where like you know you couldn't under the Hayes code, you couldn't really have a hero that wasn't like a pure hero in some ways. I mean, well, you know, I, that's true actually, because you know actually back then you could. I mean, look at Bogart's career. Yeah, but but I mean, like there there were rules written into it that like your your hero couldn't really commit crimes. They couldn't. They, well, if you did commit crimes and you weren't you know redeemed at the end, you had to kind of kill your character off or show him in this kind of morality tale. And, well, I, and I think that that morality has kind of uh, followed movies into, um, like kind of followed the way that scripts are written uh, to the point where now it's a, bit, it's a little bit different because things are um, sanitized and like, I, I don't want to say politically correct, but like sanitized to the point where they don't want to offend anybody with their movies because well, that's everybody the has the potential, uh, yeah, the potential I mean, customer. I saw the other day again High Sierra, which is a great Bogart film. He plays a character modeled on John Bellinger. He's a, he's a gangster, and you like him because he's a gangster with a heart. But yeah. he's, he's a killer too. And at the end of the film, yeah, he gets killed in a very spectacular way, and it's it's tragic because it's like a tragic hero. And and yet they they didn't make any bones about the guy being a criminal. And uh, yeah, they had him in love with a girl who was uh, handicapped and all that. It was a little hokey, but. Um, you know, they when you look at the films of the 30s and 40s, they 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 have a lot more flaws in these characters than a lot of people do today in films. Although today, they I guess they have people blowing people away because they deserve it. Is the idea, you know? Yeah. Because uh, they're the bad guys of whatever we think are bad guys now. But back then, you could have a complex hero. John Wayne played a lot of complex heroes, and uh, and they weren't always heroes too. They were anti-heroes, and I, I really do believe it's gotten worse. You're right that. The basic thrust is let's not offend anybody because we might lose part of our audience. And what they're trying to do is get the huge score with every film. And they, yeah, well, if the guy smokes, that'll uh, cut the box office by seventy-five million or whatever, and that's really stupid. You know? And I think people misunderstand that. Like, you have a lot of people that um, get upset that they're like, "Oh, well, this is because Hollywood is specifically liberal, or this is because their politics are." They're trying to, you know. Um, employ the idea of like social conscience into their films and that's what I don't like but no it's the fact that you go into a film and they're like if anybody gets offended by our hero in this film if everyone, if anyone gets offended by this film in general they're not going to want to go see it how can we make this um, the least offensive film possible because of money not because of any kind of politics really yeah and then you don't want to see the film because it's so bland I mean there were some silly rules in the old days uh, but I mean, I just watched Gone with the Wind again, which has its flaws, obviously. But Scarlett O'Hara is a really bad person. I mean, you know, she's got tremendous flaws. But you kind of like her because she's a survivor and she's 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 strong and she supports her family and her and people. And, he, you know, she doesn't give up under the worst stress. But she's a very reprehensible person in most ways. But they got away with it, partly because it's based on a best-selling book. You know, if you if you base uh, a film on a, on a bestseller, it's amazing what some of the filmmakers got away with back in the day. I mean, if you look at uh, Preston Sturgis's, uh, well, this was not based on a bestseller. I don't know how I got away with it. The Miracle Morgan's Creek. It's astonishing. Uh, James Agee said uh, in his review that uh, either the Hayes office was asleep or uh, 
uh, or they've been raped in their sleep is the way he put it, you know, because it's, it's a movie, a, a girl gets gang banged. She's, she's a, 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 a kind of a nice, a nice sort of girl in a small town <clears throat> and she's entertaining the troops. And it, this is during world war two and she gets wildly drunk and she has sex with like seven guys and she gets pregnant. And then she doesn't remember uh, what happened or who, who the guys were. So they have to rustle up a uh, father for, for her and they pick Eddie Brackett, who's a 4F, uh, little meek guy who's in love with her. And they say, you're going to be the father. I mean, this is, how can, how can they get away with it? I really don't know. I don't have an answer for that. And it's, it's kind of a, it's been said to be a parody of the virgin birth, the kind of blasphemous parody of the virgin birth, you know? And uh, it, it, then she has sub, uh, quadruplets or whatever it is at the end of the film. I mean, they got away with incredible stuff. Uh, Billy Wilder got away with a lot of things. And too. Uh, Howard Hawks told me in The Big Sleep, he said um, they objected to uh, uh, one scene because they said it was too violent. He said, well, uh, you tell me how I should change it. And he said they came up with a much more violent uh, solution. He thought it was better. And he said, thank you, guys. You know, that's great. So he said sometimes they would come up with a really... Uh, horrible stuff you know they were they were very confused hypocritical people but they would do things to neuter films that's true there were certain films that we could point to that were really hurt by censorship and uh but they could do a lot with innuendo back then too but yeah and it made them it made them kind of you know smarter and more wily because they had to do so much to get around censors and you know i in some ways i think that film today um over the last few decades has kind of suffered from the fact that you can kind of yeah, if, if you're not, you know, going through a major studio and kind of getting it distributed to theaters, like there's a lot of ways you can kind of just get away with anything. And I feel like people get less creative in that sense, because it's like if you can get away with anything, you're not, um, you know, like a lot of these projects were done in like the 70s or the 60s when, when the censors kind of completely let go of it. And you had like uh, this auteur cinema period and they did manage to create some like really amazing works. But like decades later, when you can kind of get away with stuff on streaming services or whatever, or like HBO will give you money for a film and you kind of get like kind of create the most crass or like uh, whatever project you can kind of do anything. Sometimes it, it suffers from a lack of creativity because you're not trying to get your message slipped past anybody. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the comments that people thought in the 70s, which in retrospect was a great period for American films. And there were some extreme things that people uh, got away with. But, you know, frankly, in today's mainstream Hollywood cinema, uh, sex has gone backwards uh, from the yeah. 70s. You can't show people humping, you know, is what they actually call it. That I used to cover the ratings board, and they would never actually tell me. I would always say, why are you slapping an R rating on this film or whatever? They wouldn't tell me, but they would tell the studios, you know. And you could only, like, quite often in an American film now, a couple is uh, in an apartment and they start taking their clothes off and then it cuts to the next morning, you know, and, and, and you, uh, you infer that they had sex, but you can't show them in the bedroom with the act of sex. Whereas for a while they were doing some of that in Hollywood films and, and now it's uh, it's a very prudish time we're in actually. There's- well, They covet that PG-13 rating, right? Like that's the, that's the sweet spot. Like studios really, Mainstream yeah. studios really covet that PG-13 rating. They don't want things to be rated R because that's a demographic then that, that can't get into the see the film at the theater. Like, um, so they covet that like very. And, and I'm not saying that that's the whole reason why we're because no, because they see like our movies bombing, and that's because the R movies that they're talking about are terrible. Yeah, 
Yeah, and then they would do the opposite thing. I remember back when I was on Variety, I'd hear stories about they would say a film would get a G rating, and then the studios were horrified with a G rating. Even Disney didn't want a G rating because uh, teenagers wouldn't go to a film with a G rating because they thought that meant for little kids. So they'd throw in the F word, you know, and then they would get a PG 13. So they would actually encourage that. That kind of reminds me of when I was a Catholic kid. I, I One time I was going to confession on Saturday. They forced us to go to confession, which I really hated. But I, we were walking, I was with a three or four guys and we were walking to church and one guy said, you know, I don't know what I can confess because I haven't committed any sins this week and uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And we all kind of looked at him and, and then he saw the priest's house and he said, I know what I'll do. And he ran up to the priest's house. He started peeking in the window and he said, okay, now I, I have something I can confess. You know, it's like strict uh, codes have a way of causing people to behave badly in a strange way too. that. But I, I think American cinema is very juvenile today. Now, Ernst Lubitsch, who I wrote a book about, how did Lubitsch do it? it? It was a very subtle, sophisticated director, but his films were very sexy and racy. But he would he would do wonderful things with innuendo. And uh, he said even the you know, dumbest member of the audience could get the, the, the idea. But when I show it to students today, they're amazed at how, how sexy his films are. Like a great example Billy Wilder talked about um, in The Smiling Lieutenant, a Lubitsch film, uh, Maurice Chevalier is seducing uh, Claudette Colbert, and it's a beautiful seduction scene, very funny. And But he doesn't show them in the bedroom because you couldn't do that back then. He cuts to the next morning. It's a fade out, fade in. And uh, they're having breakfast. And it's just a, a long two-shot where they're eating breakfast together and singing a song called Breakfast Time. And it's all risque, uh, double entendre about the food. And it's just really wonderful. I remember the the, the, the raunchiest line is uh, Claudia Cobra sings, uh, I'm gone when you invade the marmalade. I, I love that. You know, you can just imagine <laughs> what that's about. But there are all kinds of lines building up to that about the toast and the coffee and the, the juice. And as Billy Wilder said, um, um, there was uh, no nudity in that film, but uh, uh, like I said, in those days, the butter was on the toast and not the ass, but there was more nude, more more sexuality in that film than in uh, uh, Last Tango in Paris, is the way you put it, more, more eroticism. Uh, so it's a very racy film. You don't have to show them like in Last Tango, which was a pretty explicit film. It's like right up to the point of being an X-rated film. I mean, I guess it was X-rated, but it wasn't a hardcore film. But the Coen brothers, uh, you know, they, they love the uh, films of Sturgis and Lubitsch and uh, uh, the classic filmmakers, and they, they're able to do all kinds of innuendo. They don't, they, you know, showing people bouncing up and down naked is not particularly uh, interesting cinematically. Uh, it, it gets, you know, when you cross the line into... Uh, it depends on when you go to the cinema, I guess. Or, or, yeah, right, right. I mean, in other words, uh, as Orson Welles said, the two things you can't fake on the screen. He, he said, I, I don't like to see people praying to God or having sex on screen because he said, I always know that it's uh, fake, you know, or whatever. And uh, But if you can imply a lot about sexuality, which is a huge part of human life, and the Coen brothers deal with sexuality in, in, in their films, but uh, they don't have a lot of explicit sex. I, I, I guess in Fargo, there is a scene where the two guys pick up a couple of uh, waitresses and have. Yeah, but that's played for comedy so so well. Like you know, you learn a lot about those characters even in that in that moment. Yeah, like I think ahead. it's interesting. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say in Barton Fink, the only real sex scene 
is basically a prelude to her being murdered. Like, and they do like a, a big kind of uh, kind of lead up to it. Right. Like, it's kind of like yeah. it's it, he certainly has an interest in her. And it's like she's not exactly disinterested in him. And then the circumstances somewhat change. And then that leads to, like, basically one of the most biggest inciting moments of the entire movie, which is the fact that, oh, I'll swap. Finally, he gets the mosquito. Yeah. Yeah. But like yeah, it's on her body yeah. because she's yeah. dead. <laughs> yeah, and there's a you know a shot that the Cohn brothers keep talking about with their, Roger Deakins is their great DP in a lot of films. Who's, who's the greatest of all time? One of the greatest cinematographers. And, and I have I have him um I have a clip of him explaining uh some of the cinematography. Well, just we'll finish this, but I'm just well, like, I have so a yeah. talked about it, but there is that shot when they're starting to make love uh, the camera moves away from them it's a long tracking shot it goes into the bathroom and it goes down into the drain of the sink which is supposed to be a humorous sexual uh, innuendo but it's it's sort of a, a kind of a billy wilder kind of gag too because it's like going down the drain but it, it implies fluids and all kinds of things and then it digs into the thing so they're often when they worked with deacons they would say can we do one of those shots again the going down the drain shots or whatever they had fun doing that you know but it is it is a lubitian kind of sexual innuendo uh, without showing the sex act but as you say then she gets uh, murdered and it's sort of it's extremely grisly you know yeah and, and it feels like a culmination as conan kind of said like a culmination of this long uh story of kind of dissatisfaction throughout the movie that he, he finally gets that pesky mosquito that's been biting yep. him like what like 30 40 times in the head. right <laughs> that's right kafkaesque it reminds me of uh, metamorphosis you know the cockroach and everything you know but by the way this is a uh, an unfortunate place to have charlie rose paused but <laughs> he's been canceled up there, so. <laughs> well yeah from barton fink in 1991 you, you, your collaboration with the Coen brothers. Here it is. Roll tape. Just talk to me about what I'm seeing <laughs> from your standpoint. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was uh, well, my standpoint. I think in how we did it technically, you know, we built this corridor. We built two matching corridors in, um, in a warehouse in Long Beach. And our great effects supervisor filled the walls with copper pipes with holes in them so that they, you could produce oh, this yeah. fire coming down the walls. Yeah. And um, I'm shooting this handheld sitting on the back of a, like a, <coughs> a little cart <laughs> that Bruce, the dolly grip, who I still work with actually, <laughs> was pulling it. But <coughs> it's interesting, just, <coughs> excuse me, what I was saying about um, technology. I mean, this is all done in the camera and you think, Maybe today a lot of this would be CG, you know, this would be yeah. digital. How much easier is that? Well, it's easier, but it's just there's something you miss, I think, you know. But it's also so much fun doing it for real, you know. John Goodman burned yeah, right. burn his John, hair, yeah, right. I think, doing that. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Also easier to go around labor standards when you use CGI. Yeah, you can, I mean, like, for example, with the recent horrible uh, killing of the camera woman uh, on the set of a film that they're talking about, they're going to go with gunshot effects, which is safer, you know, and you could use a gun that doesn't have any explosion, explosions and you could build it in. It's it's more expensive to do CGI, but, you know, Spielberg, for example, who I also wrote a biography of, 
he believes in practical effects as much as possible. He's, he's kind of a holdout for the classical kind of style. And he feels that if you do something for real, I mean, it's all fakery, but you know, like if you can tell in that scene, there is a three dimensionality when the flames come out, it looks pretty real. And it looks a little dangerous for John Goodman and, and the cameraman and the, and the guy pushing the cart too, I imagine. But um, it, it would look uh, like a cartoon with CGI. That's the problem with a lot of current films. They're, they're really cartoons, a lot of films. Spielberg has, has uh, reluctantly put some CGI effects into some of his films. Uh, I think one of the worst shots recently is the opening shot of West Side Story. I think it's just awful. That very fancy schmancy CGI shot of it is just appalling. Uh, although the, I, haven't, the real, I haven't watched the new West Side Story yet because I like the old one too much, so I want to watch this one. Yeah, I, 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 I'm I, not gonna lie, I don't have a lot of interest in it. it like it's, I, I really just since I was a kid, I loved, I loved the old West Side Story. I'm like, there's no way that they're gonna make this bad. Like, <laughs> I, I, I like it a lot. I mean, um, I, I think a lot of it is very good. But I saw the the old one uh, after I seen the new one. Again, I mean, I've seen the old one many times before, but uh, I do think the opening is better, the ending is better in, in the original, and the Officer Krupke number is better. But other than that, I think Spielberg does a lot of wonderful uh, uh, singing and dancing and the dramatic stuff. Sometimes the script is a bit pretentious, but uh, the camera, the first shot, he has trouble opening his films sometimes. The camera does all kinds of gyrations. It's very phony. Uh, the worst shot in modern films, by the way, is in Pearl Harbor, uh, it's a shot that was in the trailer. Uh, it's the kind of shot Roger Corman often, I used to work for him, he would say, I want a shot where somebody says, I remember in one film, he said, I want uh, the teacher to blow a whistle in close up and say, okay, girls, hit the showers. He said, put that in the film because I want that in the trailer. So you'd have to work a scene out based on what Roger wanted in the trailer, you know. And he had an exploding helicopter shot that they they got in the Philippines that he used in uh, many trailers, even if it wasn't in the film, for example. That was a famous Roger Corman story. But in Pearl Harbor, they put in the trailer this so-called nifty shot uh, from the point of view of a uh, Japanese bomb going down you know, onto an American ship. And it, the ship blows up, and it's very spectacular. And the audience is supposed to think, wow, that's really cool. But when you think about it, first of all, it's, you know, Hundreds and hundreds of guys have just gotten killed, and uh, you're rooting for the Japanese bomb. You know what the hell is this? And uh, it it also looks so cartoony. And, and to me, that is what's wrong with modern American films generally: is this going for a nifty special effect at the expense of all uh, narrative logic? And uh, uh, you know, what's the point of view of the film? Is are we, you know, why are we now in the point of view of the Japanese bomber and the Japanese bomb? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's kind of like those scenes you see on TV during, you saw during the Iraq War, where we would show the so-called smart bombs dropping on targets that the, the American military would supply to CNN. They never showed the, 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 the dumb bombs, uh, you know, dropping because most, you know, ninety percent or more bombs don't hit their targets and they kill uh, civilians, and, and they didn't show isn't us. That the, uh, isn't that the distinction Obama ran on? We need more. We need more smart bombs and less dumb bombs. Yeah, and then he was the guy who killed uh, probably uh, close to ten thousand people with drone strikes, and uh, his fans don't want to hear about that. But 
including, including uh, two American citizens. That, exactly. That, yeah. that was one of the worst things that ever happened in American history. I mean, it's bad enough they killed 10,000 people. But uh, he actually, when he killed two American citizens, um, he sent his attorney general, Eric Holder, out on TV to uh, say that Obama was justified in killing American citizens whenever he wanted to. I thought that was perhaps the lowest point in the history of the presidency. You know, and there have been some pretty low points. It, it kind of follows, um, and, and kind of Chomsky's written about this a lot, um, kind of follows that moment where George Bush tells the UN, um, like, pretty much like, no, we, we're above international law. We've like, we invented right. international law. It doesn't apply to us. And the, like, logical, like, the logical next step is kind of, no, we're above domestic law. Domestic law does not apply to us. Is kind of the, the next jump you can take from there. Right. Before uh, Obama did that, Bush uh, publicly admitted they were torturing people. And uh, it used to be, I was thinking this is a change from the Nixon years when Nixon, I don't know, you know, uh, if he's, you say at least he had the decency to lie about the crimes that he was committing. I don't, I, that's, that's kind of paradoxical, but Nixon felt the need to cover it up, I guess, because he was a lawyer and back then. You couldn't go on TV and say, "Hey, you know, I was bugging Democratic headquarters, and I and I uh, authorized." Uh, I mean, he he didn't authorize the bugging of Democratic headquarters; his minions did that without his knowledge. But uh, he didn't get up on TV and say, uh, "I I told him to uh, break into uh, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office." But what Bush did, which was an innovation, George W. Bush, was to admit all his crimes and basically say, "What are you going to do about it, guys?" You know. It's yeah. Very brazen. Hitler did that kind of thing too, but in American uh, history, that was kind of a novelty. I remember when I was a kid in 1960, when Eisenhower was caught lying about uh, the U-2 plane. That was a big shock to all of us because we actually believed the government. Pretty much, most Americans believed uh, when the government said something was true, and the president. I mean, presidents have always lied, you know. But here's Eisenhower caught in a flagrant lie, and and now the scandal is if the president tells the truth. That's actually very unusual. Uh, I mean, Biden actually is not as dishonest as Trump, but Trump Trump never told the truth if he could help it. That is very. Well, and there was something kind of almost Nixonian about the way that Trump lied, right? Like it was kind of, uh, you know, things had fallen so far that it was kind of lies for the sake of lies, and it's like, you know, like there's there's a moment where he it's it's almost like his George W. Bush moment, but instead of saying like, you know, what are you going to do about it, international law, like he's like, what are you going to do about it, fact checkers? Like, of course I'm not telling you the truth, like. You can fact check me all you want. I'm just going to keep lying more. Yeah. You know, like. Cares if it's true or not. The Russian Post can uh, correct the lie. But, you know, I mean, somebody did a survey of uh, Fox News stories and they said 80% of what's reported there is false. I just did a, a book uh, right before the Coen Brothers book called Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy, which I think is my most important book, actually. I've been working on that for a long time, and it's a, a long study of how the media have been lying to us for years about the assassination, even up to today. And that's, I think, what has caused, uh, you know, it's often the, the schism we have in our country between half the country believes one thing and half believes the other. And we saw the results on January 6th of 2020, uh, 2021, people uh, attacking the Capitol. And that could happen again in four years. Uh, I, most people say that started with the Vietnam War when we were lied to, but I think it started with the Kennedy assassination when we were lied to and it led to the Vietnam War. But so I, I'm we, really. Uh, we just had one of your friends on, uh, John Barber, came on yeah. and uh, talked to us for, for 
for a good two hour episode and going going kind of all over the place. Didn't care to discuss the movie we invited him to discuss. He thinks, he thinks Dan Rather should be waterboarded, <laughs> which was a key moment. Well, Dan Rather is one of the culprits that I talk about a lot in Political Truth. Uh, yeah, John John is, is a good guy, and I've been on his show, and he's he's got a wide range he's, of mind. He's great. He's yeah. he's not afraid to say exactly what it's on his mind. Let's put it that yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> he's, I used to watch him on TV back in the 70s. And, uh, yeah, yeah. He's a firecracker. He he also gave Forrest grief for attempting to host this show, which is ostensibly yeah. his show, which was hilarious. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, but I finally got my real people T-shirt, so you know exactly. And he sent me two signed books, so he's okay in my book. Oh, good. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't send me anything, but he didn't send Forrest a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I would open it if he did. I don't. Also, <laughs> that's a book out of his. Uh, Reviews. Somebody uh, transcribed his, a lot of his best reviews from television. Very funny. He's a very funny guy. He's hilarious. I mean, he, he and he's 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 deeply entertaining. Don't yeah. get me wrong. And his phone apparently never stops ringing because it rang like seventeen times during the course of that episode. Wow. Well, uh, you know, but anyway, this is a transition to a Coen Brothers movie, Burn After Reading, which I think is one of their neglected films. It actually, I like that one. Yeah. It's one of their better grossing films because Brad Pitt is in it. But it's a film that isn't talked about much, but I think it's just terrific. It's a great political satire, and it, it is a serious film underneath the uh, humor. And, and that's where uh, they talk about the Legion of Morons, and Francis McDormand and Brad Pitt, and uh, they're, they're, they're trying to sell out the United States to the, to the Russians because she wants uh, plastic surgery that has to be financed. And Brad right. Pitt is, I forgot that one was, yeah. <laughs> really but they're charming, you know. You kind of understand, okay, well, you know. But they they take they they find the memoirs of a disgraced CIA agent played by John Malkovich, and he's just a kind of an idiot too. And that's one reason he was kicked out of the CIA. But they try to sell it to the never would happen in real life, by the way. They would they keep their idiots close. Yeah, I mean, you, I was just thinking, you never leave the CIA even if they kick you out. <laughs> As George H.W. Uh, Bush found, I was the guy who exposed his long CIA connections. Well, that's a different story, as they say. But um, in in this film, uh, they they go to the Russian embassy and they try to uh, they meet with an official and they say, "We have this disc, you know, with this guy's memoirs. We'll sell it to you for fifteen thousand dollars or whatever it is." And the guy looks at them and he's just like astonished that they're going to sell out their country for for you know this idiotic reason and uh, they, they don't really care they don't think about selling out the country it's just they need money you know and then he, he says this we've looked at and then they come back and he says we, we've had our analysts look at this stuff and it's really drivel and uh francis mcdormand misunderstands it and she thinks he said dribble she, she says dribble what does he talk about dribble this is not dribble you know uh, it's a very uh, funny satire and then the way uh J.K. Simmons wraps it up at the end. He's the head of the CIA, how they cover it all up. It's, it's actually a pretty good satire of the CIA, uh, disguised as a goofy uh, comedy about silly people, but it's got some you know dark elements to it. And, and I think that, you know, um, it, it, something you said earlier in this episode, um, you know, that they kind of make fun of everybody. And when it comes to, like, institutions with the Coen brothers, like, they make fun of kind of all of these institutions at the same time. And like looking at like Hail Caesar and kind of that limousine liberal style, um, you know, I think they call it like, well, I've been listening to uh, um, the the Revolutions podcast and a perfect word for it is like 
uh, coffee house radicals, right? Like the the type of um, you know uh, very very well to do communist radicals that we're kind of discussing all of these things um, that don't actually have like that are, that are untethered from them, I guess. And Barton Fink is another character who's you know his like populist obsession with the common man is not something that he actually so you can look at those and say like oh well um i think the coen brothers really are making fun of the idea of of kind of communism in general and and who kind of takes that role on but then you also look at um like even in this movie like the idea of like the commodification of the artists themselves um and how that's like kind of making fun of how capitalism has gone too and it's like all these institutions are kind of mocked you know relentlessly by the coen brothers in all of these films um, to the point where it's kind of um, irreverent just for the sake of being irreverent, like because all of like every every institution that we really have, um, you know, is is fallible. And every institution we really have is, you know, has these uh, huge flaws. And like whether whether it's someone who's kind of um, leftist in nature, I guess, or but disconnected or whether it's kind of these um, more like right wing capitalist kind of uh, exploitative sides to things. Um, they, they're both kind of, yeah. Well, they do it in such a way that's like South Park fans claim that South Park does. Yeah. But South Park yeah. does not do. They do it in a way that actually is like, there's equanimity yeah. in the mockery. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in a way, you know, I, I answer that. That is one of the objections. I mean, some people like that aspect of the gun brothers, some people don't. One of the objections of their detractors is that they are nihilists. In other words, they don't believe in anything, and they they just make fun of everything. And uh, some uh, I, I take out after Jay Hoberman a lot in the book. He's a he's a useful foil, useful idiot, I guess. He's a he's a pretty good critic, but he has a blind spot about the Coen Brothers. He really hates him, so I'm quoting him a lot. He gives me good fodder, but he says that the Coen Brothers' philosophy is basically uh, what they were thinking when they were in a bunk bed in uh, Minnesota, you know, in the fifties or whatever. Which is a way of belittling them, but I, I don't think they're total nihilists. I, I really don't think so because when you look at, say, Fargo or No Country for Old Men, as we've talked about, uh, they have a core of uh, integrity there. They're, they're built around characters who are trying to stop terrible things about our world today: serial killers, lawlessness, uh, anarchy. You know, and they're not supporting that. They're not in favor of the serial killer. They're they're showing what the guy does. And, People sometimes get confused because they don't have uh, speeches pointing out that this, uh, you know, we don't like this guy or whatever. But the, the lawman or the law woman in Fargo, they they have speeches, short speeches, where they talk about the inability to cope. I don't know what to do. And at the end of Fargo, uh, Francis McDormand says to the guy, the guy who doesn't really talk much, the psychopath who's in her back of her police car. You know, it's a beautiful day, and uh, you know you, the, the woman is uh, killed. I guess she's in the wood chipper, and what's it for? A bunch of money. You know, I don't get it. You know, I mean, that's that's all you need to know about. You know, why why are these people doing it? And, and the guy in uh, No Country for Old Men is is kind of an unstoppable force. He's almost inhuman, and uh, so that's kind of how when when you see a serial killer who is hard to understand, like certain people we just can't fathom why they kill certain people i guess you could come up with reasons but sometimes other reasons but the cone brothers have a certain core of integrity and uh, a serious man is another one that is about an ordinary uh, 
nice man who's he says I, I'm not a bad man, but all kinds of terrible things happen to him. It's it's really their their uh, film of the Book of Job, and nobody attacks the Book of Job for being too cynical or nihilistic. It's uh, actually I put that on Facebook, and some guys said I attacked the Book of Job. Actually, yeah, I think it's a very dark book. You know, it's about but what it deals with is this very serious question that is a very uh, 20th century conundrum and then uh, carrying over into our 21st century. Uh, Elie Wiesel, in his book Night, which is about his experiences at Auschwitz, talked about in the concentration camp, he and his fellow Jews were wondering, where is God? You know, like they talk about, uh, they watch children being hanged, you know, in this death camp, and that's like the worst thing you can imagine. And they, they look up at the skies and say, where is God? We believe in God, and how come he's not here? To, you know, And they some people lost their faith in Got it for the guy. Yeah, that, that book is that book is seared in my mind because um I had to read it in eighth grade and oh. it was and it was like way too early for them to be like, listen, let's 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 listen to uh otherwise I'll talk about the Holocaust. Here, here you go. Just, yeah, I you're studying uh, I mean I've studied the Holocaust since the Eichmann trials and, and I in my Spielberg research I, I did a lot of yeah, we'll cheer this show up, why don't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> serious uh, weighty issues in our world uh, and a serious man bothered a lot of people because it's so dark at the end that it ends with a yeah. tornado coming to kill these kids and uh, but it's about this uh, devout Jewish man who he goes to three rabbis for help and it's modeled on in the book of Job there are three wise friends that he has that they don't have answers for these questions why am I being why am I having all these sufferings and Barton Fink is like that too why me and then uh, John Goodman says, "Well, you don't listen," and that's yeah. That is Which he doesn't. To be clear, he does not. And like, it's it's all the more on rewatch. It's all the more notable when he does not multiple times, and he has multiple he goes, times. He goes, uh, he goes, "I could tell you some stories." And he goes, "Sure, you could." And yeah, that's of course, you're, you're great. Yeah, you know, like it's all about the things that you're trying to tell me. That I, I think that I think that, and this is I want to talk about the cinematography in in Barton Fink, but the last film I'll kind of bring up, and I forgot this was a Coen Brothers film, and I forgot that I watched it a while ago, but um, I think that they kind of like to make fun of the idea of uncompromising artists because I think that they are uncompromising artists. And I do think that the idea of um, like, you know, nihilism or something that doesn't apply to them, but I, I think that they're not afraid to rel relentlessly mock both in Barton Fink and inside Lewin Davis, um, that film where he's, you know, oh. like the, the, you know, the, the folk singer, uh, Isaac Oscar is, you know, plays this kind of folk singer. That's kind of a, a failed version of like Bob Dylan or somebody like that, or like, um, who, who's uncompromising? Isaac Oscar is that what you said? Or, no, yeah, Isaac. isn't that Isaac? Yeah. Isn't that his, his his name Isaac? It's Oscar Isaacs. Isaac. All right. Well, <laughs> am I? Do I have to get called out over every mistake I make on the show? It's like only the egregious ones. Yes. <laughs> One of our friends own. Well, I, I mean that, that is a, a film that really is. I mean, so many personal overtones to that film because he's an artist. And, you know, one of the things that they do in that film, it's not just he's a victim, as, you know, some some filmmakers would make a film, a, a singer is a victim and he suffers for his art. Well, they're showing that this guy is partly the author of his own misery because he's uh, doesn't treat women well, he doesn't treat other people well, he's very self-centered, like uh, um, Barton Fink is self-centered, that's a problem for a lot of artists. 
but also he's he's a, a somewhat second-rate person, and that's underscored by the fact that at the end of the film you see Bob Dylan in the distance singing, and and it's meant to say, hey, you know, this guy, he's pretty good, but he's not Bob Dylan. That's why Bob Dylan is going to emerge as a big star, and this guy's going to be forgotten. And it's it's a very sad film, very dark film, but he's a deeply flawed man. Uh, and they confront that and, and they're honest about it. And uh, it, it keeps it from being just like the victimized artist. And I, I was just going to finish about the three wise men in, in the book of Job. In, in a serious man, the, the man goes to three rabbis for answers. The rabbis are supposed to be teachers. That's what it means. And all of them are kind of clueless. You know, one guy is sort of flippant. Another one is uh, giving platitudes. None of them has an answer for his problems. And one says, well, you know, get more and more stereotypical every time. If I, like, yeah. if I remember them, like, and then like extra, like extra, you know what I mean? Like they, they kind of, each rabbi is more, is like more of like an ethnic stereotype in, in a weird way. Like, well, I, I mean, that's another whole thing I deal with in my book. I have a whole chapter on yeah. ethnic uh, stereotypes. No, I, 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 I didn't I didn't do like a, a deep read as much as I guess I should have, but I I did skim each each question and kind of looked through the, the chapter that you answer with. So I, but, I, yeah. actually for people who might be interested in that particular question, I, in Bright Lights online magazine, wonderful uh, online magazine that uh, Gary Morris does, the one man magazine, I, my chapter on ethnic issues in the Cone Brothers is is in there. I put it up online as an excerpt. People can read it for free. Uh, but uh, they get accused sometimes of ethnic stereotyping or, uh, you know, all through their work, they have a lot of ethnic characters of all different varieties, Irish, Black, Jewish, uh, you know, all kinds, German. I mean, uh, you could just go through the work, Scandinavian. And and uh, I think that they're kind of affectionate in their, their humor. It's like John Ford. I wrote a whole essay on John Ford's ethnic humor. I think ethnic humor, it, it, today people are afraid of it. But it used to be a common thing. Sometimes it was mean, and I don't like it when it's mean and nasty. But uh, if it's affectionate, uh, you know, uh, it can be very entertaining if there's a kind of fellow feeling and warmth to it, as happens in a lot of Ford films. And in uh, the Coen Brothers films, uh, for example, the woman, uh, I love uh, Irma P. Hall's performance in The Lady Killer. She's such a great actress, elderly African-American actress. She's one of our best actresses. She's just terrific. She plays a real beatific, innocent character, and she's in. She rents her home out to a bunch of uh, criminals and killers, and she somehow survives, and they all wind up killing each other off. And uh, the the guy Alexander Kendrick, who directed the first version of the Lady Killer, said that the old lady's innocence, in a way, is lethal because she winds up being responsible for destroying all of these people, and that's kind of an interesting paradox too. The Coen Coen brothers have certain innocent characters. But it, Graham Greene, I, I, he changed my view of innocence because he wrote in The Quiet American, which is about the Vietnam War in 1955. He wrote a book on the Vietnam War. And he said he wrote that innocence is a form of insanity. And I think that's a really interesting comment because innocence means you're not culpable, but you don't understand the world at all. And to be in the world, you really should understand what's going on. If you're living in a house full of criminals, you really should know that they're committing crimes. But she doesn't. But she's a sweet, lovable character. But what gets people, what I found in reviews there, when she gets the reward money, she gives it all to Bob Jones University, which she contributes to every month. And the gag there is, as we probably know, Bob Jones University is a notoriously racist institution. 
as for a black lady to, to uh, unknowingly right. give her money to a racist institution struck some people as nasty. I think it's funny because I don't think the joke is on her. I think it's a joke is on Bob Jones University for exploiting uh, ordinary people and including yeah. black people. You know. But um, I, I want to switch lanes for a second before we go to letterbox one-liners, which is a bit we do, and I want to talk about the uh, the cinematography a little bit. Um, you know, I, I know that Conan had stuff that he wanted to say. I think it's fascinating that they kind of created the hallway out of um, – I, I never would have thought of that. And I have the hallway behind us. You can't see it because we're, you know, we're in front of it. But the hallway behind us is the background, um, you know, that, that I put out for this episode. I change the background every episode to something from the movie. And, um, yeah, so I find that really interesting. Roger Deakins is obviously amazing, and I love everything about him. And he, um, he, he might be the best cinematographer of all time. Let's let's be clear. I mean, the, like, Conan, you were you were definitely on this episode uh, when we did Sid and Nancy, right? Um, yeah. And he we had we had the clip of him talking about how he was in the car with Alex Cox, and he was cramped in, and at the last minute they were on a lunch break, and Alex Cox was like, "No, no, just get in the car for a second. and they drove over the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm pretty sure and uh, filmed this whole sequence um, in the car. And so, you know, yeah, I, I think that he's he's like a fascinating cinematographer because he seems to really love the, like, the act of filming so much. And look, like, look, I mean, we know with a career like his, of course he does, but like, it's, you know, every every movie he has like this tender feeling towards. Um, and then with Sid and Nancy, good example, like not to get too off topic, but like, you know, it goes from as the movie goes on, it gets more and more washed out. It gets like more mm -hmm. and more. It it gets lit in in a way that's more there's like a uh, like a more white pallor to everything. And like everything is like loses its color as time goes on, like little things like that. I mean, the guy is a freaking I mean, I got one of the best in the game. Well, I think the point you're making is a good one that he. Each film is somewhat different. He doesn't just force mm -hmm. his style on a film. The style comes organically from the material, and each film looks different. And uh, he is a master of, of. I mean, he's done so many great films. I, I, it's hard to compare great greatness, but I would. My other favorites are uh, Joseph H. August, who did a lot of John Ford films, and, and Greg Toland, and, and, and uh, James Wong Howe, He's one of my idols. But I, I put Dickens right up in there company which is a high mark indeed well and like look at so again as forrest mentioned right like the background episode for this show is that incredible near liminal space scene of like down like this near endless hallway sometimes when they shoot it it looks like there it has no end and they like show David it again Lynch and again and again before, before, before it gets terrifying like yeah, right. they show they, they yeah they built that in a, uh, a big uh, uh, warehouse kind of hangar type thing uh, they, you know, so much of the film takes place in very limited settings, and <clears throat> they wanted that for special effects. And uh, you know, they, they had to. It's very unrealistic in a sense. At the end, some people think the second half of the movie is kind of a dream fantasy because uh, you know Martin Chick is walking through the corridor, leaving the hotel, and there's flames all over, and he's not harmed by them. But in uh, oh, another moment, or even that it's like, you know, yeah. maybe something that he's like kind of like doing writing in his head or like it's like a parable of him attempting to write or, the second, or whatever. The second the second half of Barton Fink is the script that he turns in. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Right. But by that same token, just from a, a pure like looking at the movie and seeing something cool that that the scene with John Goodman at the very 
far into the hallway. And then you see the flames kind of come in. And then the flames like slowly overtake things as things get more and more intense. And as he approaches both the viewer and the camera saying one of the most like obliquely cool lines of all time, that if you were paying the remotest attention of the movie ties, everything together is one of the things that makes this a fantastic film. Yeah. And there's another moment. There's another moment where he's leaving the, the hallway and John Goodman walks back into his room while the whole place is burning. Hey, yeah, whatever. You know, ain't no thing. <laughs> like watching that film, there's a certain ambiguity that he is the devil, obviously, but he's he could be construed as God, too, you know, and there's interesting theological debates about God and the devil, uh, that God is, uh, did God create the devil and did God create Satan? He is you, are you a Tom Waits fan? Joe, yeah. uh, you know, there's that great line that uh, there ain't no devil, there's just God when he's drunk. Yeah, yeah, that's that's terrific. Tom Waits is in most respects, you know, great. Yes, yes, and I never, I never noticed this in the in the movie, but you had the um, you wrote about how he's reading uh, he opens the Gideon's Bible, which I did notice, but then the first passage that he turns to is I, I forget which passage that you wrote, but then he he gets inspired by the Genesis passage, right? Um. But then later there's a scene where he opens it up and he sees like the whole, that same fishmonger intro he keeps writing. Well, actually, in the Bible, right? Which is great. Book of Daniel, but then he opens it up again and it, and the Bible has become his script. It talks yeah. about fishmonger in the book of Genesis and then right below it it says uh, in the beginning was the word and uh, or uh, at the beginning uh, you know, in the beginning was the word. That is the motto of the Writers Guild, kind of. They always talk about that. That's their, because that's how the Bible starts. And uh, they always try to proselytize for the word being the most important thing. And the Coens are the greatest screenwriters alive today, too. I mean, I think of them as the sons of Billy Wilder. They're, they're uh, that good. And they're making the kind of films I think Billy Wilder would make if he were alive today. Uh, uh, you know, and, and Wilder kept evolving with the times. And, uh, they're very dark, they're social satirists. And Wilder mixed comedy and drama, which is controversial in uh, both his films and the Coen Brothers films. But I think that's one reason they're so good is that they uh, they jar our sensibilities. Uh, you know, you don't quite know what to expect from scene to scene in a Coen Brothers film. Which makes this, I mean, a, an interesting episode for you to be on because the last one, obviously, we did Sunset Boulevard and we talked about your uh, Dancing on the Edge book. So it's, it's you know, it's awesome to have you back for, um, you know, this, this this episode talking about the Coen brothers. One more scene I wanted to talk about before we do letterbox one-liners, um, you know, uh, is is that when, you know, he discovers, he obviously has the, he sees the murder uh, happen and he's kind of losing it. And the first time we really see, I mean, I guess it's the second time, the second time we really see him outside, um, you know, after those murders, right? Everything is oversaturated and bright, and he's that's the scene where, um, you know, he's prosthetizing in front of him and kissing his feet. That whole scene, you know, Barton, uh, Barton Fink's nerves are like shot to shit by that point because he's, you know, thinking that cops are after him and he's gonna get caught for this murder and he doesn't know quite what's happening. And I find that like a really, really interesting scene because the rest of the film is so dark, like they're in dark rooms, they're in the dark hallway, and it cuts right from that. To this like overly bright scene on the uh um you know on the on the owner of the, the the louis b mayor character pretty much um uh like his out like the the patio on his house with the pool and they're sitting outside and everything is like more bright than it's been for the entire film 
And they kind of do the same thing with the WP Mayhew scene where, uh, you know, he's trying to kind of flirt with um, his his secretary turned, I guess, mistress. And they're outside and it's the most wonderful. Her character, because she's really important. That's a weird scene because they're having a picnic in the middle of a parking. uh, I don't know what you call one of those roundabout things. Uh, Yeah. It's a strange place to have a picnic, but. Uh, she is based on a real person named Mita Carpenter Wild, who was uh, William Faulkner's secretary. And she wrote a book with a friend of mine named Oren Borston in the 70s, a wonderful book called A Loving Gentleman. It's her memoir of her affair with William Faulkner. And Mita Carpenter Wild was one of the greatest uh, script supervisors in Hollywood. She worked, worked on the Maltese Falcon and she kept going into the uh, 70s and 80s. And I never actually met her, but I was a friend of Oren Borston. And, it's a beautiful book, uh, and but she had a long-term romance with Faulkner. But you know, in in the movie, she, Judy Davis is a great actress, and she's portrayed as actually having written his work, and that that is a distortion because Faulkner, as as serious a drinking problem as he had, he kept turning out books until the end of his life. And Howard Hawks, who I uh, you know did an interview book with Hawks on Hawks, he he played Faulkner over and over again, and. and there's a terrific book too called "Sometime in the Sun" by Tom Dardis. He, he he reverses the stereotype because the general stereotype is writers are exploited by Hollywood. They, you know, they bring these great writers to Hollywood and they they prostitute them and ruin their lives. And he, he says, no, actually, they save these guys' lives as much as they could because it's about Fitzgerald, Faulkner, and uh, Nathaniel West. Those guys were having trouble making money off their books. Their books weren't selling. You know, when West died. Uh, all his books were out of print, and uh, now he's he's a great legend, but he wasn't in his time. And uh, uh, and Dardis makes the point that Howard Hawks and people like that kept these subsidized these writers. You know, Faulkner would come to Hollywood for a few weeks or whatever, and and uh, Hawks would pay him a lot of money for a script. And and there was a famous story about him. He said, uh, "Can I work at home?" He asked the studio, "Can I work at home?" And they said, "Sure." And then they tried to find him. It turned out he was in Mississippi because he went home. Uh, but Hawks would put up with that and let him uh, work in Mississippi. But Hawks told me, for example, on To Have and Have Not, he brought in Faulkner to rewrite Hemingway's novel just to piss off Ernest Hemingway because <laughs> he was jealous of Faulkner all the time. He said, I, I could take a bottle of bourbon and go in the barn and write as well as Faulkner, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but Faulkner was a great writer, and uh, despite his alcoholism, he, he worked on a lot of scripts, but uh, some of them have been published, and so he was productive. He was more productive. Uh, uh, I mean, certainly the guy in the film is completely uh, far gone, but that's kind of an allegorical representation yeah. of the famous writer. Who's- and, and it's also kind of, you know, it's Barton Fink being um, incredibly judgmental towards what he sees as like the purest form of writing, right? Like being a writer, being a, a, a playwright or a novelist or really any kind of um, famous writer, he kind of um, fetishizes. And throughout the movie, you obviously see that his his writer's block, number one, like writer's block leads uh, W.P. Mayhew to drink, kind of is, is the feeling that you come away with, um, which kind of makes it so that he's kind of a Barton Fink type character down the road. Um, you know, with, if Barton Fink continues for the rest of his life to be, unable to write and just kind of uh, wasting away. And at the same really time, yeah, yeah, I think that's really true. That's a very good analysis. He is hard to check at a later stage. Of, uh, yeah. Falling I mean, in more, a more gentlemanly uh, Barton Fink because he, you know, he has his, his nice uh, 
honey-tongued way of talking and everything. And Barton Fink is just kind of an awkward fool in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's also the fetishization of uh, who the writer is that Barton Fink throughout the play isn't, or throughout the movie is not um, living up to by any stretch of the imagination, right? Like he has Audrey come to his room to help him write the script. And he's like, what did you do? What did you do for him? Once she found out that he that she's like a script supervisor kind of and helps write the scripts and she's like the same thing I'm doing for you, like you know what I mean? Like he's put this guy up on a pedestal, so in his mind he's like, well, that's W. P. Mayhew. I'm Barton Fink. I'm kind of lowly and just trying to learn how to make it in the in this uh, universe. But like you know, th this guy is supposed to be you know up here on this pedestal and he's not living up to it. But that's not the way that that thing that that would work in his mind for anybody else. Like he's fetishizing uh, the act of being a writer to a point where he can't really reach. He's written one good play. Every single one of his plays is about fishmongers, which is an amazing bit because yeah, that yeah. shows that the only way that he can actually uh, uh, connect and, and the two characters, I didn't, so I've seen this movie probably a dozen times. I watched it three more times this week. Um, and I noticed on one of them, that the, the two characters in his play at the beginning are named after his uh, uncle Maury. And they're named after his mother. When he, when he gives their names, you're like, I, like th those are the names of the characters in the play. He can only really create these characters based on um, people in his family, and they all have to be like fishmongers. Yeah. So it, it kind of <laughs> it's kind of a spoof of the writer, and he says in the film, maybe I've only got one story to tell. There are certain writers um, who kind of wore, wore it out. I mean, uh, uh, Harper Lee or J.D. Salinger, although they they did some other things too. But uh, you know, they were famously uh, kind of written out like, quickly. But uh, one thing about the Barton Fink character that he is based on Clifford Odets, who was a famous playwright and he came to Hollywood. And I, I thought it very interesting uh, that the Coens are thinking of doing a sequel to Barton Fink called Old Fink, wonderful title. And uh, Fink means informer. That's one of the words. Right. Yeah, like rat, rat Fink, right? Like it's... Uh... But, uh, Clifford Odets turned informer during the blacklist period. And... Uh, he worked, for example. Oh, on, interesting. So I could see that would go like maybe like that way, right? Yeah. He worked on uh, It's a Wonderful Life and other films, and then he uh, informed on his colleagues. And so uh, what Old Fink is supposed to be about is it takes place in 1967, the summer of love in San Francisco. Fink is teaching at UC Berkeley, and he's turned in a lot of his colleagues to HUAC. And uh, right, you sold you sold me on this already. <laughs> But they said, we're going to wait and make this film until John Turturro ages into the part. And, you know, we're going to make him when it, make it when he's old. And I have another little bit of lore here about Meta Carpenter Wild. But uh, John Turturro then said a few years later that they're thinking of setting it now in the 70s. But uh, old thing, anyway, Meta Carpenter Wild was the script girl on the Maltese Falcon. They called them script girls in those days. And a story I've heard about the Maltese Falcon, and I think the, the Coens know a lot more about Hollywood history than they let on. Uh, a, a writer who was very well positioned told me this story that when John Huston made his directing debut with the Maltese Falcon, Howard Hawks told me, he said he was... By the way, I should say we did a Maltese Falcon episode um, um, less than a month ago, right? Um, Andy and I and, and, and Jay Hutch. Um, well, I'll tell you an inside story about it, but... Uh, Hawks told me he, he was trying to get Houston to direct his first film because he, he wanted to reward him for writing Sergeant York. And uh, Hawks said uh, to Houston, uh, 
I, I, you know, I'll support you with Warner Brothers making a film. And Houston said, what should I make? And uh, Hawks said, the Maltese Falcon. Now, Hawks took credit for everything. And then Houston came back and said, well, it's been made twice before. And Hawks said, well, yeah, but they didn't really do it. They, they, they twisted it around. And he said, just film the book, basically. So what Houston did was, according to this writer who is well-positioned, he told me that Houston gave the book to his secretary. And I don't know if this was Mita Carpenter, who was his script clerk at the time, but he gave it to his secretary, whoever that was. And he said, break it down in film terms and then give it to me so I can write the script. So she, she took the, the very cinematic novel by Dashiell Hammett and wrote, you know, like exterior, long shot, you know, and then the dialogue, et cetera. And unbeknownst to Houston, the script made its way to the front office and they approved it for filming. And they, they, they told Houston, okay, go ahead and make that film. And he said, well, wait a second, I haven't written the script yet. And they said, well, don't change it. It's perfect. You know, so <laughs> the secretary wrote the script of the Maltese Falcon, which is hailed as a great screenplay adaptation. So maybe that piece of lore made its way into the brains of the Coen brothers. And, and so the, the, the woman in that trouble, Audrey, is secretly writing the guy's work, you know? Yeah. Weird. Uh, by the way, I, I like that her name is Audrey. Cause, um, actually, I got, so I got a, if, if you remember correctly, I got um, a, a puppy the same week that we did our last episode. So I was in Long Island picking up a, a dog from the shelter. That dog's name is Audrey. Uh. So when, when he's like, Audrey, I need help. I was thinking about um, Lassie. And like, I was like, yeah, that's how I was going to be if I fell down a well. And I was <laughs> one, one of the many pets that make uh, uncredited cameos on this show all the time. Yeah, Andy had one just a minute ago. Luckily, Sam, there's a great scene where the dog is telling John Turturro, kill, kill. You remember that scene? He, Summer of Sam is about the son of Sam, where he the guy claimed he took his cues from the dog talking yeah. to him. He it's thought like, the dog was God speaking to him, right? He has the dog talking to uh, the character, you know, he's going crazy in the dog. Maybe your dog could write the scripts for you. <laughs> All right, so I, I, I'm going to set uh, Conan up for this. This is the Letterboxd uh, one-liners. Letterboxd, of course, is a um, social media site that uh, people review films. Conan, stepping on his bed. Yeah, you're, you're stepping on my intro. And just in time to be interrupted in my bit. <laughs> By a pet that I invoked earlier. Uh, so yeah, Joseph Letterbox. It's a, it's a, it's a place for films. It's a social media network where people that are film fans talk at with and to each other about films that they love, films that they maybe don't love, films that they are mystified by, that they want to goof on, so on and so on. Uh, you get to first of all, one of the most valuable things about it is you can track what you want to watch, which is how I got into it in the first place. But uh, everyone gets expressed their opinion. There's no Siskels or Eberts, no Lords, no Masters, bottom up democracy. Uh, you know, take of that what you will. It's the fire hose. But we have found here on Movie Extravaganza that the best representation of Letterboxd, at least for the purpose of exploiting it for this bit, is in the one liner review for the different movies that we cover. So these here are the one-liners for Barton Fink. My neighbor, <laughs> my neighbor Turturro. <laughs> I laughed for this one for probably five minutes, by the way. By the way, Joseph, 
these are meant to be reacted to, so don't well, forget to be quiet. Where Barton Fink looks like Clifford Odets with the high hair, hairstyle, etc. And you know, the film reminds me of numerous films, including Eraserhead. You remember the guy's high hair? I literally have an Eraserhead glossy photo in my background. Yes, I remember it. It's right. It's yeah, that film, uh, I really hated that film. I reviewed it for Variety. And somebody did a piece on David Lynch in uh, Premiere Magazine. They started with my review and they said, some idiot at Variety uh, panned that film. And I, I really, I, actually, that, that and Pearl Harbor are my two least favorite films. I think because it drove me crazy watching uh, right. But the guy, Jack Nance, who plays that part, another little bit of trivia. I used to live in South Pasadena, California, which is a nice little suburb. And there was a donut shop I used to frequent in a mall. And Jack Nance lived across the street from the donut shop. And at 5 o'clock one morning, he went out his 24-hour donut shop. And he got beaten up by a bunch of guys and he got killed. I remember that. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I used to go to that shop, but not at 5 in the morning, you know. But anyway, it is like Eraserhead. It is a David Lynchian kind of film, isn't it? It is. Writer, writer's Block is a hell where John Goodman is your shotgun-wielding next-door neighbor. <laughs> Sounds like a, an ad line for a good film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, uh, Redolent of the Shining, which is a great movie on Writer's Block. You know? Yeah, that is, that, is, that is one of the top Writer's Block movies. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that, yeah. <laughs> It's no Texas Chainsaw Next Generation, but it's a solid picture. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying boo to this one. <laughs> it's just, it's a I, I gave a rave review to the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, and the mafia company that distributed it was shocked that I gave it a good review. They thought it was garbage. <laughs> that's, that's one of, honestly, though, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite movies that we've covered. And it is people, great. People like were weirded out by the fact that I was and brought it up so many times. Well, I saw it at ten o'clock in the morning, and, and I was that's an ungodly time for me to be up. And I, I, I an ungodly time to see that movie. I'm sitting there, and it starts with a bunch of people eating flesh next to a grave, and I, yeah. I grew up. And, it just gets better from there. I thought, oh, this movie is based on Ed Gein, who was one of my favorite characters back when I was a kid. You know. He's, he's a legend. He's the guy that Psycho is based on. Everybody yeah. knows, uh, knows all the Ed Gein stuff. Yeah, we did, we did a, a month called Murder Night Extravaganza, and we covered that at length. We are, I was going to mention that earlier, but it, it, it wasn't relevant anymore. But I, I still just, you know, I, I just think that, look what your brother did to the door! It's one of the best lines of any, of any movie of all time. Fantastic film. It made me do a little Barton think. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Buscemi, you know, they that's how they sometimes think of characters. They think of people they want to put in their films, just like John Ford or other people did with the stock company, you know. This is exactly what happened to me the first time I went to LA. Well, no, is this yours? <laughs> By Joseph McBride. Yeah. I was going to say, it wasn't just me, because I think this film is very much an allegory of what the writer goes through in Los Angeles. And I, I think if you asked any professional writer or recovering screenwriter, they will probably say, yeah, I can really relate to that guy. Yeah. Have to assume Barton is just the worst <laughs> at sex. <laughs> well, Judy Davis has to uh, jump on him and, and uh, to kind of take his glasses off, and uh, 
it's actually, you know, an interesting thing that the scene when they, when John Goodman says, well, you got to know about wrestling and uh, get down on the floor and I'll show you how to do wrestling. And Martin Fink gets behind him and, and the Coen brothers said, this is a sex scene. This is, I thought of that immediately because uh, wrestling has a kind of homoerotic quality. And, and that's kind of, He's a man. We wrestled. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a great thing. Movie that uh, you know that it's, he's writing this homoerotic wrestling picture. Yeah. Getting killed by John Goodman with a shotgun in a hallway engulfed in flames is a pretty good way to go. <laughs> I will agree with that. Well, it's better than being under contract to uh, any Hollywood studio, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I have a great quote from Arthur Miller, of all people. Let me read this quote I found. He wrote a piece on, on Martin Fink, the great playwright Arthur Miller, wrote, The only thing about Hollywood that I am sure of is that its mastication of writers can never be too wildly exaggerated. <laughs> in other words, here's Arthur Miller, one of the great playwrights, saying, wow, okay, uh, nothing is too exaggerated. I mean, I, I gave some of my examples of crazy stuff, but I mean, I could tell even worse stories than, than I experienced that I did tell you. But, and oh, that's oh, the point. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, those those are the letterbox one-liners. We, we, we had a couple more. Oh, oh, oh yeah. sorry. All right. Uh, second best horror film about a man with writer's block descending yeah. into madness while staying in a hotel. That's what I was alluding to because spoiler alert, you mentioned that earlier. Uh, yeah, I love the to me, it's a really great film. And, uh, you know, uh, Kubrick is somewhat similar to the Coen brothers, and I think he's misunderstood too because um, people think he's uh, a misanthrope. And in Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Buster Scruggs is the beginning. I don't hate my fellow man, even when he's surly and cheats at cards. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's, that's their answer to their critics, I think, because that's the wanted poster, and they're denying their misanthropes. I don't think Kubrick is a misanthrope. I, I think he's a disappointed romantic like Billy Wilder was. And I think the Yeah, Coen no, I would, I, would, I would 100% agree with that. I would not say the Coens are disappointed romantics. I don't think they're ever disappointed. I think they're they're uh, jaded idealists is the way I would put it. That's a very apt descriptor. I, I think they have a certain uh, ideal of how people should behave, and they, they unfortunately don't. But there are some good people in their films, you know, like Marge and Fargo and the guy in A Serious Man. And even Barton Fink has some good qualities. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's an everyman character. We can all kind of relate to his, his flaws. And, I mean, that's part of the point of satire uh, is you know, Aristotle said, and I quote him in my book because he's he, he wrote the best screenwriting manual several thousand years ago, his poetics, and he said comedy is is mocking human vice, and tragedy is about human potential, and that's kind of a paradox because tragedy is about people who have great potential but don't live up to it and they fail, but you realize what what humans could be. Uh, and they fail, like in Macbeth, which Joel Cohen directed. Uh, Macbeth had the potential. I haven't seen that yet, but looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a good film. But Macbeth has the potential to be a better man than he is, but he fails because of uh, a flaw, a big flaw of uh, ambition. But uh, mocking uh, human vice is what the Cohen brothers do. Uh, although Aristotle said, um, when it becomes painful, it's not comedy. And a lot of the Cohen brothers' mockery involves pain. You know, there's a lot of pain where the woman in uh, Fargo gets killed and 
uh, you know, the guy winds up being responsible for killing his wife, etc. But that's one of the things that is controversial about them is they really deal with pain and humor intertwined. And that is a very modern thing because I think we live in a world that is full of uh, horror, you know, and uh, how do you deal with that? And I, I think they're help, kind of helping, helping us navigate through it. I read an interesting comment. I don't know if this is true at all. Why are they taking a uh, hiatus from working together, Joel and Ethan? Um, somebody speculated, uh, I mean, one that as far as we know, Ethan just wants to do other things for I'll write plays, he writes short stories, and Joel is trying his wings, directing on his own without his brother. And Did you actually uh, get a chance to interview them at all for this? Or I didn't, um, I didn't make an effort to interview them. Uh, because it's a critical study, not a biography. And I, I've been yeah. writing critical studies in recent years, although I, I interviewed Billy Wilder a lot, and uh, but I never interviewed Lubitsch, obviously, because he died the year I was born. But um, uh, when you do a biography, you interview everybody you can. But like my Spielberg book, he wouldn't give me an interview, but he said he's saving it for his autobiography. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if that ever comes out. But uh, I, I interviewed everybody else, like his father and his teachers and his babysitters and his, the guys, that he, the kids that he made movies with as, as a boy and everything, and a lot of people he made movies with in the film business. But um, this is a critical study, studying their films. And, you know, what they say about their films, and I make this point strongly, is that you can't take them at face value because they don't like to tell anybody what their films are about. And I see them as similar to John Ford. The first person in, in Hollywood I ever interviewed was John Ford in 1970. And it was the last day of his career. I showed up in his office as it happened on the last day of his career. He announced his retirement in the midst of our interview. I hope I didn't provoke him into that. But <laughs> there are reasons of film projects. All right, I'm done after this interview. I'm out. Unfortunately, a film project fell through that afternoon and he, he realized it and then he packed it yeah. in. But he's the worst, he was the hardest person to interview, except for Jean Luc Godard, who I actually interviewed in uh, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. He was a complete schmuck. But John Ford stonewalled me a lot. He Love the guy's movies. He he seems like a pretentious twat every time I've ever seen yeah, him. Yeah, I don't I exactly. don't I'm not a I'm not a fan of uh Godard is gonna be a cool guy. <laughs> yeah, like I'm like the less I know about this bro the better. I adore Breathless. It's a fucking fantastic movie. But uh John Ford was uh, notoriously hard to interview but I realized I was very frustrated by that because he would pretend he didn't remember films or, or you know, say, I don't know, or whatever, uh, or give me a phony answer about things that I, I knew was phony. But now I really respect that, and I respect the Coen brothers for that because uh, the reason for that is that Ford wanted you to make up your own mind. He didn't want you to be told by him what the movie was about. And today, when a director makes a film, hundred people interview the director and they're always explaining the film to you and that uh, yeah, they don't, and, and they don't get at, they get asked kind of the same questions and we kind of had this conversation the, the other day with um uh gabriel horn uh who's you know andy's andy's pal childhood pal but um he he worked with uh tom huckabee and we watched a couple clips of them on the on the uh film festival circuit and they were talking about, like, we were talking about how kind of everyone asked the same few questions. Yeah. And, That's like, what said to me, that everybody asked the same questions, and I don't know how to answer them. I'm just a hard nosed, hard working, 
And then there was a long pause. It's an ex-director, and I'm trying to retire gracefully. But what Stanley Kubrick told Spielberg years ago, he said, never tell the media what your intention was to make a film because that's all they will talk about, just like Forrest just said. In other words, if you say this film is about X, you know, and this is my message, that's all they're going to say. They won't think about the nuances or the layers of the film. And what these guys, like uh, Spielberg, has only violated that once when he made Munich because it was such a controversial film. I think he felt he had to explain it, but he still got attacked by people who didn't get it. But um, the Coen brothers aren't going to explain their movies to you, and it, that's not their job. Their job is to make the films. And so interviewing them would probably not be very productive. And I, I you know, I, 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 what, it's up to us to analyze it because that's what I tried to do in my book. Yeah. Um, so so we have one more letterbox review that I want to. I was going to say, yeah, that's Joe, will you come back in the future, by the way, and do a rock and roll high school episode? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would be, I think that would be a fun. What, what, one of my all time favorite fun. bands is, is the Ramones. That'd be great. Yeah, there um, all right, this is the last letterbox review that right. we have to do. Yeah, as we please. So, is this some kind of sex thing? Think. No, he's a man. We wrestled. <laughs> I didn't and, want. I didn't want the bid to be done without going to that one. <laughs> I was gonna. I was, oh, I was gonna close that if it took four hours. That are the, is the letterbox reviews for Barton Fink. Uh, follow. The show Moving Extravaganza on Letterbox, a place for film. That's Forrest over there. I, of course, am Kona Neutron. You can follow me as well, as well as J. Andrew World right about now. Uh, and Joseph McBride may or may not ever be on Letterbox. We Although don't his know. Friend, his really happy his day. Alan Arkush is on uh, Letterboxd. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> and his reviews of his own movies are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Andy. Andy, take it away with, with the plugs. Oh, yeah. we forget. All right. Yes. Uh, very importantly, if you're watching us right now on Twitch, um, please subscribe. If you are uh, if you are an Amazon Prime member, you can subscribe for free. And that really does help us out. It doesn't cost you a thing. Um, if you're watching us over on YouTube, do the YouTube things. Hit that bell. Hit the like button. Comment. Do all this stuff. Play the video to the end because that all helps us out. Um, and we really do need your help because of the uh, evil algorithm. Uh, but... Uh, uh, so this uh, is solid gold. The after evil, after the, all of this, the evil uh, algorithm. Please, <laughs> yes, he did um, invent the internet. After all of this, all please hit up our Patreon too. Um, that that uh, directly helps us out. Uh, help us produce more content, uh, such as the after parties, and um, uh, hopefully we'll do some more things. Uh, 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 expand our. Uh, we have Discord. an after party coming up on Friday. It's um, going to be epic. I guarantee yeah. you. Doing that, just work. This yeah, because I'm, I'm freaking. He's party uh, neutron Conan. <laughs> look, they, they say that uh, you know if you you can't fly with the eagles if you ride with turkeys, so that's that's going to be me on Friday. But yeah, uh, Joseph McBride. If you want to see great content like Mr. Joseph McBride coming on and and. Uh, Expounding upon the many uh, topics of the Cohen brothers. Yeah, subscribe to the Patreon. Come on, this is a good show. What do you want from me? Nothing? 
Thank you. Thank you for your lore and uh, wisdom. And, and, yeah, well, we're not we're not closing out yet. That was just oh. Andy doing the plugs. I have I have one more. There's so many bits. Set. It feels like there's it feels like there's fifteen thousand bits and there's like three. But we we've 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 managed to move them over the course of like fifteen minutes. So good for us. I, Andy, so Andy, were you done? Was there something else? Discord. I think I, think I had everything. Discord. Discord is coming. Yeah, I have one more clip I wanted to play. Um, and then we'll, and then I'll go to final thoughts and I'll close out. But um, I, I wanted to uh, play this while Joe is here because this is um, the Coen brothers and John Turturro doing press for Barton Fink and bullying the fuck out of Dick Cavett. And I, I emailed this uh, in our in our email chain that we had for this episode. But he, has a, he, I mean, as you can see here, Dick Cavett has a bandaid on his head, and okay. they just relentlessly roast the fuck out of him for two minutes. So I wanted to play that, and then I will go to final. The cat, everybody. You guys shot a scene, and then you stopped him and said you missed that word. And and you know, well, sometimes it's, if it's an important word, we'll go back for it. Yeah. If it's the subject of the sentence. Yeah. I also think that's misinterpreted for a lot of different. You know, people say, well, you know, they're really like control freaks, and I've I've read these you know these interviews that they want to control everything, which is not the case. It's it's the case is. They give you a lot of freedom. How you do it, they give you a tremendous amount of freedom. But if someone comes up with an idea that has nothing to do with what they wrote, mm -hmm. and that's what happens sometimes. The guy says, "Well, you know, I feel like vomiting in this scene." Yeah. And then, well, you know, the scene's not about that. You know, right. they don't like, encourage that type of. It uh, might spoil the wedding scene. Although generally we don't discourage vomiting. We've had a lot of it. Yeah, right. Yeah, movies. yeah. yeah it's just <laughs> But it would mean like for, you know, feel like a love scene or something. Right. So. Somewhere a learned paper right. is being written about vomiting yeah. and, uh, as, uh, and its symbolism in the films. Uh, yeah. You were saying something interesting during the break, which was that uh, you've kind of based a character on somebody after the fact. You know what I'm talking about? M Miller's Crossing. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say this on Yeah. So this guy is. unfair, doesn't it? <laughs> hey, 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 what's the story with uh, your forehead? I was just. Wonder. There's no, there's a connection. I'll draw it for you. In just a moment. <laughs> but nobody can remember. <laughs> no actor can, uh, and and other people too, actors and regular people can right. forget your begging for your life thing, and that which was truly amazing. I mean, it was just um, someday it'll be in the time capsule of great moments. Uh, <laughs> amazing, I love it. <laughs> I love that ponytail too. Wow, error appropriate ponytail. <laughs> you know, the point Turturro made is a good one about actors that it's like Billy Wilder and his collaborators, Charles Brock and Niall Diamond, they designed their scripts perfectly. You know, I mean, they really thought yeah. through and the dialogue was uh, wonderfully structured and beautifully written. They did not encourage improvisation, they were very leery of that. And yet, the actors in those films had a lot of freedom. It's a paradox. The same with Hitchcock, that if, if they're professional actors and they do the lines uh, the way they want to, you know, the director, as somebody said, is a taste machine, or as Orson Welles said, the director is, is simply the audience, the thing missing from a motion picture. In other words, you say, yeah, no, I didn't like that. Why don't you do it again? And then he does it a different way. But as Turturro said, he's not going to suddenly come up with a piece of business that isn't appropriate for the scene. But uh, the, the, other character, other actors, uh, Tim Blake Nelson and other people have said that about the cons. They encourage a lot of freedom for the actor because they feel very comfortable in, the, in a good script. 
that they're they're not struggling to say the lines. They're they're, they're great dialogue. I mean, uh, the, the scenes are well constructed. So that's a very good insight into them. Yeah, for sure. I just also thought the the idea of them uh, bullying Dick Cavett for having a bandaid on his head <laughs> was pretty funny. Um, so. This is this is. Well, I'm just I, I, like as, oh, yeah. as as I was just gonna say, as someone who, when I'm not doing this, is is a one-on-one interviewer and was once compared favorably to Dick Cavett. I gotta say, he did the work, and even in his in his later years, put on a good show and platform people that were in, inherently creative that nobody else would, and that always deserves respect, even though he did look like a goof ass with that bandaid on his head. Well, so if you watch through the the whole twenty minute thing, which I did, yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 amazing. Like you don't yeah, need that much he, of it. He clearly but, yeah. is very passionate about them, and they're fucking with him the entire. time. He's real, but but the, yeah. the thing is, so that's like the through line, you know, for <laughs> that, and like shows much like this ones that are somewhat irreverent, but also like there's a deep heart and love of the thing that's being covered as well. I I want to throw out a plug for the best TV show I ever saw, except for live events. You know, some live events are great. But the Dick Cavett show once, he had Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontan and Noel Coward as his guests. And they were the the original cast of Design for Living, which Noel Coward wrote. And Dick Cavett, sometimes he was a little too intrusive and tried to, you know, uh, do witticisms that kind of fell flat. But in that show, he just sat there and kind of listened to these three amazing raconteurs. It is just the greatest piece of television I've ever seen. When we did the uh, Criterion Blu-ray of Design for Living, I told them you should get that show and put it on. And the producer went to the Museum of Broadcasting in New York and saw it. She said, oh my God, this is so great. We got to put it on. But Dick Cavett wanted too much money. They charged a lot of money. So unfortunately, you can't see that on YouTube or anything. But it is—if you ever go to the Museum of Broadcasting, go see that show. It's an amazing show. Maybe someday it'll come out. All right. Well, this, these are final thoughts. Uh, starting with you, Joe. We whatever whatever we didn't get to in this that you wanted to reference, or if there's anything you wanted to uh, sum up. Um, yeah, we just you know. Well, it's it's free. It's a freewheeling segment of uh, closing okay. out. It was about to. Um, follow a thought and then I got uh, sidelined a, a little bit from what I was thinking. Um, somebody said, and I have no idea if this is true. I talked about Joel and Ethan are not working together right now and maybe they will again in the future. Maybe they won't. Joel said, well, when we started doing our career, we didn't think we'd be a brother act for 40 years. You know, we just thought we'd work together and make a film and then another film and they became a brother act and that's fine. But they didn't, you know, they didn't plan it that way. Yeah, and the, and the label, the label like Coen Brothers, like there's yeah. no difference between them almost in people's yeah. minds. So, so Ethan maybe uh, just you know going off to write plays because he wants to write plays. He's tired of making films. He didn't want to do Macbeth. I know that. But somebody speculated that maybe Ethan is taking a hiatus because of the PC wave that's running through Hollywood that is so intimidating. We're in a new blacklist period where uh, you know, like Woody Allen can't get work in America. Uh, and, and a lot of artists are being canceled for something they said 40 years ago or something. And the Coen brothers are very edgy filmmakers, very provocative, and they deal with ethnic humor and things that get people upset for dumb reasons. And I don't know if it's true. Maybe Joel, maybe it's a good time for a filmmaker to take a few years off and come back when, when sanity returns to her. Well, I heard that his latest play 
that he's writing is about fishmongers and you know <laughs> also joseph that's not the only reason that woody can't get work right i mean come on well he didn't do what he's <laughs> he didn't do what he's accused of doing all right well roman polanski also probably feels the same way he but... did what he was accused of doing but it's like a complicated case because of the reason he fled the country is complicated but but um, Woody Allen was innocent of the charges, but he's still blacklisted. And that reminds me of the period in the late 40s and 50s where people were blacklisted for accusations. You know, in America, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, and, and it's been reversed. I know I first noticed that when I was a kid with Lee Harvey Oswald, that if you're uh, said to be guilty, uh, you're convicted in the media. And that's what's happened to Woody Allen. Yeah, no, I, that's, that's real, and that's... Look, that's not just a larger conversation. That's a whole separate show. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, would love, I would love to have it. But There's the extra part about, you know, uh, Ronan Farrow kind of being the person who exposes a lot of yeah. the, you know, a lot of legitimate things that happened within Hollywood as the, you know, like the, the Me Too writer. And the fact that he is kind of Woody Allen's uh, stepson or, you know, like, the, the, like that fact kind of um, also puts a dark cloud over you know the, the concept that Woody Allen would ever get a fair hearing in, in any place, right? When you're related to somebody, you're, you're supposed to. No, not... I'm not. I'm not. I'm not defending. It. I'm just saying, like that kind of puts the. No, you know, no, like I that. Just say that if you're related to somebody, uh, it's like you can't operate on somebody you're related to if you're a doctor. You know, because yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like it's to play, and and if you're a doctor, I used to work in a hospital uh, as an orderly. You, you have to be very dispassionate. And uh, but it, I can't report on this man. He's my stepfather. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's I mean, like I can't report on this man. He's my stepfather. Also, he did it. Anyway, but, let me but, let me let me tell you about the next person that I'm actually writing about. <laughs> well, I was gonna say the fault is really. I mean, it's partly running Farrow, but and Mia Farrow, but it's also the, the his enablers and, and book publishers and magazines who print this stuff. Um, you know about somebody he's related to and it's it's uh, lies that are uh, spewed by uh, family problems and uh, uh, Roman Polanski is a different matter altogether but you know the, the, the lines get blurred among all these different cases and, and all it takes is an accusation for somebody to be uh, unable to work and this is very rampant and uh, as you say we could talk for hours about this because it happens to all kinds of people in the industry I'm not saying this is why Ethan took a hiatus but it, it, who knows? Maybe you know. Nothing has been said about him. Just to be clear, he's yeah. not to do it because no, but just yeah. If you don't have to, he is not a dude that has to deal with it, and maybe he just doesn't feel like dealing with it, and that's fine. And like maybe he'll feel inspired to come out with something amazing that you know. And he's doing other stuff. Great. Yeah, Good I quote him in the book, and if you you can look it up, uh, uh, he's asked about ethnic humor, and he says we we really just don't care about that stuff we have fun with ethnic humor and if people uh, uh you know like in um, a, a wonderful line at the end of uh, by the way this is this is uh this oh, is yeah. the book. just the older and human comedy promoted again brothers but and we'll link this in the show notes as well yeah and and I, I read i read i read through most of it. it is a good book and and i love the coen brothers and like you know kind of seeing each point kind of debunked i didn't really know that a lot of these points were points they got criticized for to be fair like most of my experiences with being like hey the coen brothers are good and most people are like yeah the coen brothers are fucking good most of their movies are, are good movies like i so it's interesting to see each criticism kind of broken down 
and then and then refuted. Um, I think, especially because they don't really talk about their movies. They mostly just you know bring up that Dick Cavett has a bandaid on his head. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is maybe a minority of viewers who have a beef with them, but it helps define who they are, define who they're not. And uh, but there is a quote in there from Ethan about. You know, we just don't worry about ethnic humor. And at the end of A Serious Man, there's a, they, they put little funny things in their end credits. Uh, there's a line that says, no Jews were harmed in the making of this motion picture. <laughs> Which right. is hilarious. That's it's amazing. Dr. Jerry Abraham has put in. Uh, because it's made in their, their hometown of Minneapolis in the, the Jewish community they used to live yeah. in. And some people took umbrage, and you know, and some, some critics accused them of being Jewish anti-Semites or whatever, but they're they're really not. But you know, they're they're criticizing the uh, Norman the Norman Finkelstein uh, <laughs> Norman Finkelstein filmmaker. We're trying to do final thoughts here for us. That was that was the first person that popped into my head when someone said Jewish anti-Semite. Um, well, just give a final thought. Uh, when I saw Fargo the first time, I'm from Wisconsin, and I was offended where by where I live. I live, I'm from Oakland, California, but I live in Milwaukee, yeah. Oh, you live in Milwaukee. That's where I came. Well, I was a little offended by Fargo, not totally, but uh, when they, they they do, they have a lot of fun with the Midwestern dialect, like, uh, hey, hon, where are the groceries? You know, we're going to go out. And, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to pretend that I didn't do a, a fake uh, Minnesota accent after watching that and go, oh, you know, you know over there. Oh, there's yeah. A, uh... yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, don't you know? <laughs> I went home soon after that. And I was talking to my relatives back in Milwaukee, and they said, "Oh, we love Fargo." And I said, "You you weren't bothered by them making fun of the dialect?" They said, "Oh no, that was just it was great to hear somebody talk the way we talk in a movie, you know." And I thought, okay, hey, okay, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, and and I had this conversation a bunch of times, um, you know, before doing this podcast, I did give them an argument, and. Uh, Ben, ben Burgess and I would watch mob movies and kind of break them down. And we would talk about how kind of people that were like in the mob really loved Scorsese films like Goodfellas. Like, we were like, oh, well, why is that? It's like, well, people like to see themselves reflected. Representation. Yeah, like people like to see, like even, even if they're, um, well, whether it's somebody making fun of where they come from or whether it's kind of a whole lifestyle of, you know, that people are going through, they're like, oh, well, I love this because this is like, I can see myself in that. Yeah, and, people love that. Yeah, even The Godfather, you know, which is just having its 50th anniversary, a lot of gangsters love The Godfather because, they, oh, it's guys like us on the screen, you know. And I should plug my very loving Godfather episode that I did last week on uh, These Are Bad Movies that, you know, <laughs> delved into it. Hey, you guys are very eclectic. I, I really We're busy, it. yeah. <laughs> Say hi to everybody in Milwaukee for me there, yeah. I, I will attempt to do so. There's a lot of people here, but I'll, I'll definitely get my best. Uh, Conan, you got some uh, final thoughts? I you know, I, it occurs to me, first of all, as my final thought, that I'm always the one that um, has to follow up the, like, scion of the industry and rock on tour or whatever. And, like, then it's like, and here's this guy in the loud jacket to give his opinion. I'm like, great. Here I am. Uh, <laughs> but this has to be most assuredly one of the best movies about writer's block. And as a musician, uh, you know, whether it's writing screenplays or writing music, that is immediately identifiable. And the fact that it turns into this like crazy, like pseudo morality play 
that in the last 20 minutes turns into almost a completely different movie, but managed to stick the landing to talk about what it means to be creative and do it in the lens of this, this time that like is almost fetishized uh, amongst uh, creative people and also kind of be like, yeah, like this guy was like a wild ass drunk and he was like sitting there in like company housing. And most of the time he wasn't writing a goddamn thing. That's beautiful. And it's a very well done movie. It's a it's considered a very weird movie in the pantheon of these dudes work, but it's a really awesome movie like this movie holds up. This isn't a movie you watch once. Like, all right, I saw it once and I never want to see it again. You're like, all right, I'm kind of what if I saw this again? And what, what would that mean? And you have questions. It 14 times. I mean, I'm not, you, I'm get, not, you know, that's not anybody I know, but, you know. You get questions that you don't need answers to. You have characters that you never truly find anything out about. But it all works so wonderfully. And the performances are so great. I, I mean, I, I, again, I'm a huge fan of the Coen's catalog. I celebrate the entire Pantheon. Uh, but I think that in in rewatching this for this show, I think this is one of my favorite Coen Brothers movie, and and I, I think that like probably Big Lebowski still edges out a little bit for wildly different reasons. But this is You're this a California is a, guy. <laughs> it's law, uh, but <laughs> the this is absolutely one of the freakiest movies that they ever did, and they not only landed it. The Simpsons made a joke about it that showed up on multiple social media platforms every time we promoted this show that has hit the zeitgeist in a way that I can only describe. And as a guy that doesn't like using this term as Lynchian, fantastic film, uh, really, really cool. Totoro, one of one of the greats, one of the low key greats in one of his greatest roles. And, and as and as I told you, he went to uh, Sydney New Falls for his college, uh, exactly. for his undergrad. All um, roads back lead to something that's more Which, is where, I, which is where I live and which is where all my family uh, taught, which is why I live here. Um, Andy, final thoughts? I, I got to say, um, the one thing I loved about, I always love about this movie is the, uh, the way it captures alienation of creating art. And uh, because it is a very alienating, uh, you know, writing drawing uh probably making music too i imagine um <laughs> you know i can't speak to it so you know <laughs> uh but but there's some... John conan about that yeah it's very alienating <laughs> it's, but the, yeah there there's an alienating lonely feeling and this movie captures that perfectly um so uh you know and it is also a very strange movie that does a lot and gets a, 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 a and and succeeds at doing a lot because uh, because you know that's just one of many things in this film so uh yeah and, and Cohen brothers are probably one of the few people that can actually pull off uh doing something where they're 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 taking on so much uh you know so many ideas throwing it at the viewer and um making a movie that's that's absolutely enjoyable to see all right well my final thoughts are you ain't no writer, Fink. You're a goddamn write-off.